Hey everybody, how we all doing? I'm Michael. I'm with Alex. How's it going? And we're here with another episode of Falling Through Potholes, a podcast about video game franchises, their plot lines, and how they have a tendency to go off the rails. And we're here with part two of Mass Effect, going over Mass Effect 2. Probably one of my favorite games of all time. When we last left off, we had gone through the original Mass Effect, talked a little bit about the illusion of choice and kind of how it pertained to what Bioware wanted to do with this series. Uh, just to kind of give you a catch up, if you didn't listen to the first episode, Bioware wanted to make a trilogy of games where you could import your decisions from one game to the next so that your choices actually mattered. And with Mass Effect 1 being such a massive success, Mass Effect 2 had basically some giant shoes to fill in order to really go with this idea and expand it out to its logical conclusion. But Alex, before we really start talking about that, I got a mm -hmm. question for you. Mm -hmm. If you're Commander Shepard, what's your favorite store on the Citadel? And by the Citadel, I mean real life. Oh, uh... What, what store would you give your endorsement to in order to get a really dumb discount? Man, that is a really good question. Um, I mean, probably just the grocery store I go to the most often. That seems the place I'll get the most bang for my shilling mm. buck. Most likely, yeah. And, you know, that's a good choice because people are constantly entering and exiting. So mm -hmm. constantly, it's going to be like, I'm Commander Alex, and this is my favorite supermarket in the Pacific Northwest or wherever the heck we happen to be. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so mine would be, like, something that, like, I don't really think is actually that great, but I'd be willing to shill for it anyways, and I'd, that'd be, like, a Walgreens or a CVS. Yeah, also like, good. Like, something, like, a place that you go into, and you're just horrifically dissatisfied every time you do so. Mm -hmm. Like, yep. you're never going to get what you want from Walgreens. You're not going to get, you're like, you're not going to get, like, if you go in there and buy, like, a bag of chips, you're just going to be, like, kind of sad, because you're like, why didn't I just go to a grocery store for this, or... Mm. You know, mm -hmm. like, you know, you don't find that's the brand of um, of like ibuprofen that you want. You right. know, just like sort of leave, and like every time you do that, you just hear my voice. Like I'm Commander Michael. This is my <laughs> favorite drugstore in yeah. the greater Chicago area. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, that's that's personally what I would show for. That that's a good choice. Like people immediately know that you're insincere. You just got yeah. paid for this. <laughs> That's obviously exactly. a lie. It's obviously a lie. And the bit we're referring to is a really, really good bit in Mass Effect 2 where you can go to the Citadel, and in order to get a discount, you can basically sign over more or less your voice likeness to every single store. Mm-hmm. And you can literally go up and down a row of stores, entering and exiting, and constantly hearing Commander Shepard saying, that's their favorite store <laughs> on the Citadel. Would you figure everyone around would be like, no, that clearly is not. <laughs> I thought oh, the extra, weird model shop was. It's extra good because I don't even remember using the stores that much. No. Like, I like, feel like the discount is a minor convenience at best. It, it really is. Like, you use it to get, like, some gun upgrades, and that's about it. But. Yeah. So you, you really just sold out your integrity for basically nothing over and over again to the point that no one believes you. Yeah, it's... You know, it's almost a metaphor for where Mass Effect would eventually go. <sighs> you're not wrong. Oh, you're not wrong. Ah, <laughs> oh, joke's so painful. 
Mm. You had to take a second to groan at that one. So, yeah, Mass Effect 2. Yeah. Alex, what's your experience with Mass Effect 2? Okay, so I've I've been thinking about this since our last episode. Mm-hmm. Mass Effect 2 is freaking great. Yes. Mass yes. Effect 2 is really, really good. Um, it's got some problems, both narratively and, like, functionally slash technically. Yes, also. And, and moreover, they made some changes from the first game that initially sort of put me off a little bit. Like, there are things I personally didn't like that they did. But really thinking it over, the things that Mass Effect 2 does well, oh man, Mass Effect 2 does really well. Oh, it really does. Oh my god, it I'm not sure if this makes my top 10 favorite games of all time, but it definitely makes like a, like it almost makes it on there Mm -hmm. Uh, because yeah, it, for this game, for some people is like the game of the decade. Yeah. Which given it came out in January, 2010, that means, you know, it had to compete with the entire decade. And like, I don't think (laughs) it gets there. Like Breath of the Wild came out, for instance, Dark Souls series came out. Like there's a lot of really good series that came out. Right. Right. Yeah. Like, it it felt really mind-blowing when I played it the first time. Yeah. Because, one, it seemed like a sequel that actually exceeded all of my expectations. Mm-hmm. Uh, or at least that's how it felt. Like, you know, right. going back and playing again, like, Mass Effect and whatnot. You know, there's definitely some things I like about that game more than I like about Mass Effect 2. Mm-hmm. But it was... It was a game that, like, the second I beat it, I immediately started to back up. Right. Because I had to. Right. And just had to see all the different changes, all the different things they did. And I think a lot of the reason why I really like Mass Effect 2 is a lot of the heavy lifting that the original did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The original game doesn't have a whole lot of like really good character interactions, particularly between your individual crewmates. And that's something I'm definitely noticing as I'm playing through Mass Effect again recently. But what it does do really well is it, once again, it builds this world. Mm-hmm. This world that feels lived in and like it's existed for thousands of years. And it does all that work up front so that when you get to Mass Effect 2, you can immediately stop doing that world building and just focus on the character-to-character interactions, which I think, for the most part, it does incredibly well. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with that statement. Yeah. And because of that, it made I think that's the reason why it was something I was more willing to sort of jump into again. Uh, immediately afterwards whereas with the original mass effect i i know i had to like take a little bit of time before i can jump back in Mm -hmm, right i I think another really big thing is they did make the change from being a more open game to being a more closed and linear sort of game yeah yeah i would i would definitely say like on the spectrum of rpg to action game it shifts further towards action game than the absolutely yeah very very heavily and i mean you can even tell just by looking at some of the places that you go to like in mass effect you go to novaria the ice planet Mm -hmm. and like immediately you're into this like incredibly wide open area like this corporate like this corporate headquarters and like it's it's a little bit on the empty side it feels like but like it's it's very big and it's very massive yes and like they do that with every area they do whether it's the citadel whether it's random planet or novaria they Mm -hmm. want to convey a sense of scale right mass effect two decided we're not going to do that everything is gonna be much more focused much more claustrophobic yeah which is a very interesting choice and i think i think i know why they did that the first is because they wanted to make things seem a little bit less empty and a little Mm -hmm. bit more focused right 
And the second is I think they got a lot of criticism about the loading times in the first game. Yeah. And this was their way of cutting it down. Yeah, the, and that's fair. So yeah. so that change is one of those things that sort of put me off the game initially. Um, hmm. In general, I didn't feel like I minded it. I think the Citadel was specifically the place where it got to me. Yeah, the Citadel was really disappointing. Because um, in the first game, the Citadel, although empty and sort of padded spatially, and yes, chock full of endless loading elevators, especially on consoles... Mm -hmm. um and by consoles i mean xbox 360 because i don't think mass effect one came out on ps3 it did not no um but yeah so even though it was sort of empty and of uh, you know arguably bloated the fact that it was as big as it was gave it the sort of grand nature and spectacle whereas the in mass effect 2 you really are only in sort of like a central corridor of the citadel yeah and there's like narrative reasons that oh after sovereigns attack like there's damage all over the place you can't just go anywhere it's a, you know it, this is the safe part of the citadel now please don't leave this corridor yes <laughs> but but yeah it, it did feel less incredible i guess mm -hmm. yeah it, it totally does and yeah the citadel is definitely one of the places where it's most noticeable it's it's the most disappointing mm -hmm. yeah it also, Mass Effect 2 also has another problem that's highlighted by that part of the Citadel, because that's the human part of the Citadel. That's right. The Zakara War is what it's called, and that's where like the vast majority of humans live, apparently. Mm -hmm. Mass Effect makes a really big deal about humanity's new on the, on the world stage, or the galactic stage, I guess, in this case. Right. Mass Effect 2 seems to forget that. Yeah, a little bit. And, oh boy, is that a problem that's going to carry forward. Yeah. And it, part of it is justified by the fact that humanity now has like a very important place at the mm -hmm. end of the first game. No matter what decision you make, they are basically either have a voice in or are in charge of galactic politics now. Right. So it makes sense that they would have a higher focus and, and what have you. But at the same time, they seem to forget that it was only 35 years ago that humans actually discovered alien life existed. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. Like, they basically treat it like humanity's actually been around for, like, 100 years or something like that. Something like that, yeah. Like, like honestly, I'd forgotten that the time frame was that short. Yeah. Like, I, I had sort of put in my mind of, like, oh, yeah, it's, humanity's been, like, integrated into galactic politics for, like, a century-ish. Which mm -hmm. is still very young compared to the Asari. But, no, it's, it's literally a generation. Yeah. Yeah, it's literally just one generation, here we are. Yeah. Also, the the decision that, like, oh, this is the human ward, this is where most humans live, is, I can sort of, I don't find it unreasonable, narratively, but I also don't really like it. Yeah. For like, it's a, a little bland. It is. It is. It, especially for a game series that, like, trades so heavily on their cool alien species. Mm-hmm. Like, give me the cool alien species. I don't want to talk to humans. Yeah. Like, every time you introduced me to a human, I usually think that human sucks. Yeah, pretty much. It's like, I don't, I don't know if I can trust these Elcor. I'm like, shut up. The Elcor are great. Oh, my God. So, one, that actually is a good segue into one other thing that, with the narrative that I think Mass Effect 
2 does. Whereas, like, mm-hmm. Mass Effect was, like, really big on world building once again. Right. Mass Effect 2 does do a good job with its own little bit of world building and has smaller moments. Yes. So, in Mass Effect, like, when you would get an elevator in order to give you something to do during the very long load times, mm-hmm. uh, they would usually have, like, a news reel or something that will, like, like play and whatnot. Be like, right. oh, man, this sort of thing happened, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually related to a decision Shepard made. Mass Effect 2 has those, but they're now just sort of out in the world. Mm-hmm. And it leads to some incredibly awesome moments, such as the all Elcor production of Hamlet, which they give you an <laughs> advertisement for. Which we never ex- really explain what the Elcor are. They're basically like sort of elephants without trunks who, who uh, communicate with their species via gestures and scents. But since, you know, other species can't communicate with that way, they actually communicate by being like, hello, uh, surprised, hello, human, I did not expect you to be here. Like, they they communicate in this very monotone voice, and they have to explain all their emotions beforehand. Which, like, makes this, like, bit, like, really, really great, because it's basically, you know, them going through the entire play of Hamlet while they're explaining every little emotion that goes on. And it's, oh, it's so good. So, so yeah. good. Yeah, it's very or, good. Or Blasto, the first Hanar Spectre. Oh, Blasto. Blasto's <laughs> it's, so good. It's the, the Hanar are just space jellyfish, which you love talking about the religion, but <laughs> the idea that one of them could hold a gun is pretty great. <laughs> yeah, it, so they do like a lot of like little moments like that that are really, really good. Yeah. So, yeah, I would say overall... Mass Effect 2 is a much smaller, more focused game, which mm-hmm. is sometimes to its detriment, but also often to its benefit. Yes, agreed, agreed. Like, I, I, would, I would expand upon that by saying it's a more personal game in many ways. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and because of that, you could actually sum up the entire plot of Mass Effect in maybe four paragraphs. <laughs> Because the reality of Mass Effect 2 is it places a lot of focus on the interpersonal relationships between Shepard and the various people that she meets. Mm -hmm. So in order to actually make this a little bit longer, we're going to be talking quite a bit about those. Because a lot of those characters will come back in Mass Effect 3, and then most of them will have an impact. Uh, A lot of them won't. (laughs) (laughs) Some of them will some of them are actually kind of insulting by how little impact that they'll have. But A little bit, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but we'll still talk about them, because a lot of them are fun, and the few that are important are incredibly important. Yeah. But with that, let's talk a little bit about Mass Effect 2. So with the release and subsequent success of 2007's Mass Effect, Bioware now had the difficult task of following up with the highly anticipated sequel, Mass Effect 2. This was a problem that was, ironically, compounded by their own decision-making. By creating a game where your choices were supposed to truly matter, they now had to make a game that respected those choices. With the release of Mass Effect 2 in January of 2010, they mostly succeeded in that regard. We'll get into this a little bit more when we get done with the plot synopsis. I actually think they mostly punted on that, but I'll explain why after we get done with this. Mass Effect 2, upon its release, was considered to be potentially the game of the decade, if not the entire generation. With a Metacritic score of between 94 or 96%, depending on what platform it was on, it won multiple Game of the Year awards. 
uh, it was the best Xbox 360 game at the 2010 Spike Video Game Awards, which may not seem prestigious, and they kind of weren't, but those are what eventually became the Game Awards, which I bet you didn't think that Spike TV would ever have a strong influence on video game culture, but here we are, I guess. Well, I was going to say whether that's to the benefit or detriment of the video gaming industry is still kind of up for debate. Yeah. I mean, I, don't you like award shows that are 90% advertisements? upcoming games and you have to buy access to them last year's show was so bad <laughs> i barely remember last year's show other than it was some years a shit show some years the game awards are actually pretty all right and i'm mm -hmm. like yeah all right and then some years you get last year which just oh uh, mm. <laughs> uh yes well, praise was directed at pretty much every aspect of the game, and one particular focus was the character interactions between Shepard and the various squad mates you get in the game. Mass Effect 2 takes advantage of the world being established by instead making it a much more focused experience. This is despite increasing your squad mate pool from 6 characters to 12. Admittedly, two of those characters are kind of throwaway because they're DLC characters. Mm, right. But still, they seem to have a ton of personality and interact with Shepard like, in each other in a way that seems quite fleshed out compared with the previous game. It also takes very good advantage, of the most part, with returning characters from Mass Effect. There's a ton of characters that, like, were involved in side quests and whatnot that if you did anything with them, they'll at least e either, like, send you, like, an email in the second game, or they'll just straight up show up. Uh, sometimes it's kind of comical. Like, there's one character that shows up just to be like, don't worry, I'm not criming. <laughs> like, thanks i wasn't asking <laughs> but um others are a little bit more a little bit bigger like one actually ties in with another side quest that happens uh it it sometimes does a good job it sometimes does a kind of paper thin mediocre yeah. sort of job but the thing about that is like as long as you're doing as long as you're doing some of them well and you're not dropping the ball super hard like the ones you don't do extremely well still kind of come off pretty well mm -hmm. like they they sort of get to ride on the coattails of the things you do well that and just the player will be like oh yeah that guy i remember that yeah uh -huh. totally and it really helps that this was one of the few games that actually did that yeah a lot of playthroughs were actually quite different because 100 of mass effect was kind of an arduous experience yeah a little bit so like, it, it still was cool that they did that yeah that said, that whole tr uh, decision transferring thing, mm -hmm. kind of an issue, technically kind speaking. Of. Yes. It kind of didn't work on launch. Oh, yeah, that's right. There were some glitches that actually kind of broke it. Yeah. And yes. Like, I'm trying to remember the details. I feel like the 360 just didn't support save transfer. On launch or something? It has significant issues. The PC version was fine. Yeah. But, like, the 360 version, for instance, like, it couldn't actually import your face, if I remember correctly. Yeah. At launch. Yeah. Like, it, it was stuff like that. And there were some other decisions as well, yeah, that it had it had trouble with that they had to patch it. So that uh that was kind of a major bummer. Yeah, a little bit. And it it's something you can live with. Really, the only reason I bring it up is... So Mass Effect is a kind of a weird game to have on this podcast because the point is the point of this podcast is like 
you have these video games that are designed just to be one game and then they become a franchise and people have to go, okay, so what do we do now? Yeah. Everything about Mass Effect's existence was sort of conceived together. Like it is what it set out to be. It is a trilogy of games that are connected together Mm -hmm. like they expect them to be and tells a connected holistic story. So the need to do this is something that should have been known from the get-go. And it's a little weird that they dropped the ball on it. It's This is something we're really going to get into in Mass <laughs> Effect 3, because you're totally right. Yeah. They changed their minds about certain things about the game world and the nature of the Reapers that causes some pretty strong contra- like contradictions in yeah. Mass Effect 3. Because you're right, they had a trilogy, and they were supposed. This was supposed to be planned out. Yeah. And then you get to Mass Effect Three, and you go, "Oh, you really didn't, did you?" <laughs> yeah. And you yeah. start to see the first cracks here in Mass Effect Two, but they're not readily apparent unless you're really looking for them. Yeah, yeah. Like both technically and narratively, you have these weird things where you're like, "I don't understand how you didn't see this coming," mm-hmm. but it's. Mass Effect 2 is good enough and the problems are small enough that you're willing to sort of let it slide and be like, okay, whatever, stuff happens. Yeah, Yeah, and once again, for a lot of the major, major decisions that you think like, oh, you need to do an entirely different scenario now, don't you? Right. They punt those decisions to Mass Effect 3. Yeah. The Rachne is is a huge decision, but in Mass Effect 2, the most you get is like you have... Like this random person go like, hey, I'm speaking for the Rachni. They're going right. to communicate through me. Hey, we're out here, Shepard. Isn't that rad? See you in Mass Effect 3. Uh-huh. And it's like, oh, oh, I mean, that's cool. Can't wait. But you you feel like that should already be having like a, a bigger impact or mm-hmm. like things that happen on Pharos with the Thorian or even things involving the council, like whether they live or die. Right. Yeah, because like. I know we'll we'll get into the story more, but, like, yeah, because I, in my playthrough, I let the council die. And then, so, starting Mass Effect 2, like, okay, Anderson's on the new council, and he's, like, leading the new council, and the council is yelling at him about something. Mm-hmm. I'm like, aren't, aren't you the council? Aren't you in charge? The, the answer turns out is no, actually. Because <laughs> then they would have to think of things to write about that. Right. <laughs> why why are we still on the back foot here yeah it's it's so strange it's so strange and we're definitely going to get a little bit more into that once yeah. we jump into the plot but yeah it's just it's too bad that they didn't really do more with that mass effect 2 and once again since it's just immediately after mass effect 1 and they're still building on all those choices mm-hmm. it's not readily apparent but right eventually those have to come home to roost in mass effect 3 and it's going to be a it's going to be a little bit of a problem yeah Still, though, the scope of the game helped create something that had like a bit more of a personal touch that at times seemed to be a bit lacking in Mass Effect, with mm-hmm. the, what with its focus on being something grander. Uh, these personal touches and recruiting individual squad members and side quests to gain their loyalty were a ton of fun and quite lengthy, which is a good thing, because once again, Mass Effect 2 can be summed up within 15 minutes. Right. It, there's literally four main missions. Mm-hmm. Maybe five. Yeah, the plot definitely has a bit of a mid-trilogy syndrome which is we already did all the setup and we want to save the climax for the next one so 
we'll we'll move some pieces, but we don't we can't we gotta do something else for this one because we can't fix the problems right now. Yeah, we're shuffling the chairs to get them in position for the for the last game, essentially. Yeah. So development for Mass Effect 2 was relatively smooth and uneventful, so we're not gonna spend a huge much huge amount of time on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was originally going to be released in 2009, but because of the 2009 swine flu pandemic and the oh, 2008 right. financial crash, they actually lost an estimated about, I, I think they estimated about a year of like man time, essentially. Hmm. Uh, and so because of that, they ended up having to delay it by, I think it was six months. I think it was originally like a September re- release and it came out in January 2010. Right. A bigger thing, though, was the Fox News hysteria around Mass Effect's romantic scenes. Right. Which... If you didn't listen to our podcast on Mass Effect 1, basically they try to have very, very light sex scenes in Mass Effect 1, and one of them involved a potentially kind of sort of gay romance, or lesbian to be more specific, and Fox and the conservative media sort of flipped their shit about it. Mm -hmm. This had the impact of making some of the writers and staff at Bioware skittish of including same-sex options in this game. Uh, one of the characters, for instance, Jack, uh, was a character who was slated to be bisexual, if not outright pansexual. But that was removed as a potential romantic partner for female Shepard at the last minute. Mm. Uh, it's unknown exactly where the pressure came from, but we do know it was an 11-hour change. And notably, not all writers agreed with the change. In an interview for The Gamer, one of these writers, Brian uh, Kinderegan, I believe that's how you pronounce his last name, uh, noted that, quote, it was actually very late that it was it became a male-slash-female-only reference. And he further clarified that the short version is, a lot of us were asked pretty late to focus the relationships in general on a more traditional kind of vector. More traditional, of course, being straight. The article notes that this is all in reference to the firestorm of controversy around the Liara-Themship relationship in the first game. And it's incredibly disappointing. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And by the time Mass Effect 3 rolls around, there are going to be a ton of gay and lesbian relationships. Yeah. But it is it is very disappointing that there's a lot of, like, there's a lot of good, there's a lot of good alien bachelors and bachelorettes in this game. Mm-hmm. And this game, like, really makes a big deal out of its romances once again. It's very disappointing that they're like, hey, you know, we're this character who is very clearly bisexual and mentions it multiple times, mm-hmm. they're like, like, the, the writer actually mentions that he had, like, one of uh, the developers of the game come up to him and was like, hey, yo, what's up with this? He's like, hey, this is not my choice. Uh-huh, right. But yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's really unfortunate that most likely corporate pressure forced that change because of they were fearing backlash. Yeah. But with that, we're going to go ahead and jump into the plot of Mass Effect 2. So Mass Effect 2 takes place almost immediately after the end of Mass Effect Commander Shepard is hailed as a hero, and she is on a mission with the Normandy to basically do, like, a mop-up of the Geth. Uh, she really wants to go after the Reapers, but she's more or less directed to just doing these small little missions, because it turns out, even though that there was this big alien ship called Sovereign, and all this awful stuff was happening, they actually don't really believe that the Reapers exist. All right. Yeah, which sure. is... Sure. There's a, there's a really good moment later in the game where the uh, Turian uh, uh, council member, like, you ask him about the Reapers, he's like, ah, yes, the Reapers. And he does, like, air quotes with his fingers. Mm. 
And it's like, you idiots. <laughs> <laughs> so they're on this shakedown mission and, like, you know, chasing down some Gath and whatnot, when all of a sudden a giant tube ship just shows up that's just <laughs> massive. And, like, the crew of the Normandy are not sure what to make of it until they're attacked. And basically the ship is more or less blown apart. Everybody has to get to, like, escape pods and escapes. Um, all the important members of the Normandy do. Uh, all the unimportant members, like um, uh, your second-in-command, Presley, uh, he dies. Yep. And Shepard has to go and, like, pull Joker, uh, your ship captain, or your ship pilot, out from his seat and basically escort him to the pods. Like, refuses to, like, let the Normandy sink. And uh, Shepard has to convince him that he's being an idiot and gets him to the escape pods. But right before she can get into one, an explosion sends her flying off the ship. An oxygen tank bursts on her spacesuit. And she ends up suffocating and dies. And also falls through the atmosphere and burns up. <laughs> Shepard is hella dead. They killed Shepard so hard. They killed Shepard so hard. And the best part is, like, when they were doing um, the press rounds for this, they're like, yeah, Shepard might die in this game. And then they, like, showed off, like, some of this to the press and were like, oh, I guess maybe you're playing as somebody else. <laughs> but literally five seconds later, we just hear a female voiceover. They said that they had recovered Commander Shepard's body, and it's now time to initiate the Lazarus Project. And we see, we see like, gross insides of, like, blood vessels being turned back to life via, basically, space magic, essentially. And even before this, we do get a glimpse of this giant room that's being occupied by a mysterious man sitting in a chair, looking yes. at, like, apparently very, very close to some sort of star, way too close. <laughs> with a woman who was flanking him, telling him all about how Shepard is basically the greatest and how they have to really make sure that she doesn't die. <laughs> and the Lazarus Project is basically the thing that's supposed to keep her alive. So they do all this, and basically two years pass. It takes two years to revive Shepard, because she is that messed up. But they succeed, and they do a pretty good job, like, other than some, like, weird, like, very glowy scars <laughs> she has on her cheek that will get better if she's a good person. <laughs> Uh, she actually gets better. So for anyone who doesn't know, Knights of the Old Republic, you basically move between light side and dark side. Mm -hmm. And if you if you stay if you go light side, you sort of get like glowy and stuff, but other than that, you're pretty normal. Yeah, you, you look the same. And if you go dark side, you get all crazy Sith looky and like get wrinkles and scars and horns and whatever. Because mm -hmm. I guess that's how the dark side works. Um, yes. so for whatever reason, they tried to bring that back in this game and it's so dumb. It's so dumb. Yeah. If, if you go more renegade than Paragon, like if you stay even between the two, right. your, your face heals up because it always defaults to Paragon. Yeah. But, um, if you go full renegade, yeah, your face gets all sorts of jacked up your face gets like a bunch of glowy scars, your eyes glow red and whatnot. <laughs> you look real messed up. It makes no sense. It makes zero sense. Evil ages you, I guess, which... Sure. That's not how it works in real life, just nope. judging from some of the people I know. But, but yeah, like... So Shepard, like, gets woken up by, like, basically a bunch of bangs and explosions. And she hears a female voice over the intercom. She's, like, telling Shepard, hey, you need to wake up. You need to get out of here. They are coming to kill you. And she's like... And so Shepard's like, wait, where am I? And he's like, hey, you're on, you're on a Cerberus base. Which Shepard immediately is like, oh, I don't want to be here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So we didn't touch upon this, but in Mass Effect 1, there's this human-first organization called Cerberus that is very shady. 
they're basically an alliance wetworks operation that does things like experiment on people and basically they take all the other enemies you would only see like once and experiment on them so you can have side missions with them again such as the Rachne and whatnot mm. or the thorium plants and they're basically doing very very shady stuff in order to produce super weapons or do things that would advance humanity in the eyes of the rest of the races basically put them give them the cutting edge stuff that they need to take them on because they think humans are superior Mm-hmm. They're they're a very racist organization, essentially. Yes, you only get like three missions with them, and they're the most throwaway things in the world. They're basically a terrorist organization to Mass yeah, Effect One, pretty much. And they seem like they're a very small deal, but now you they apparently have really really expanded. Right, and now you are working for them. Congratulations, or at least you eventually will be. So I do like what Mass Effect Two does with Cerberus. It's mm-hmm. It's just sort of a shame Mass Effect 1 didn't set it up to do it. Yeah. Cerberus, you almost end up rooting for Cerberus in the end. It's it's very easy to kind of see their point because, like, uh, the person we're going to meet who's in charge of it, the elusive man, actually comes off as kind of reasonable most of the time. Mm-hmm. And, like, yeah, like, they definitely do have, like, cutting-edge technology, and they're also the one force in the universe that's actually treating the reapers with any sort of seriousness right so we don't know this immediately mostly because shepherd just literally just woke up and so shepherd's like okay i need to get out of here gets a gun and it turns out being dead for two years has not reduced shepherd's ability to murder things no so basically a bunch of um assault droids essentially i don't know there's not really a better term they're robots yeah uh are basically attacking killing server uh Cerberus personnel, you end up running into a soldier who is trying to fight his way out, and his name is Jacob. Yay. So Jacob's lame. Yeah. He's he's less lame than Caden. He's he's lame in a way that I'm I'm kind of okay with. Yeah. But... He's a lot less lame than Caden. Oh god. God Caden. <laughs> Uh, like I, I i didn't mind jacob i thought jacob was fine i'm not i'm not gonna say he's even close to the best character in mass effect because he's not no, but he, like the whole time in my mind i'm just going you're so much better than Caden, at least oh yes yeah jacob is your generic soldier character and he's 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 just kind of bland a little he, bit his, his yeah. best known feature is his abs pretty much yeah yeah, and that's not a joke, by the way. There are multiple callbacks to him doing, like, sit-ups and having his shirt off. <laughs> like, this is this is just sort of a known thing with him. Yep. But this is a man who was a human and a former member of the Alliance military. Uh, he's a capable and honor-bound soldier who was once part of the Cosairs, which was, like, an Alliance-sponsored wetworks that took missions outside of Alliance jurisdiction. Uh, he eventually left the Cosairs and was stationed on Eden Prime, just in time for Saren's attack. Uh, Jake then was stationed on the Citadel just in time for the big final battle there because mm-hmm. apparently this guy just can't catch a break. Nope. Because of all this, though, he becomes disillusioned with the bureaucracy and inability of the Alliance to protect anyone, and so he quits. Uh, sometime later, he ends up helping out another Cerberus member that we're about to be by the name of Miranda. Uh, help, helps protect the uh, Citadel Council from terrorists, either the human-picked Citadel Council or the original one because this is after the attack. Right. And this puts him on Cerberus's radar, and they are, he's later recruited for the Lazarus Project. They basically just be Miranda's right-hand man. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
he, he's kind of like at odds with Cerberus's mission because Cerberus is like, will do anything to get the job done. And Jacob's pretty big on about doing things the right way. Right. Which kind of also doesn't make sense with the fact he was part of the Corsairs and he got tired of the bureaucracy. He He's a character of contradictions. I don't think he's wonderfully written. No, not especially. So I do, I do sort of like his role as like this sort of soldier of duty and honor but working with Cerberus, which means that even if he's sort of at odds with Cerberus, it gives you the impression that, okay, that there must be something about Cerberus that he can tolerate everything else hmm. for. That is a very good point, yes. But yeah, they, they, they do sort of a mixed bag with him. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, just like in the last game, where they had a clearly Paragon human and clearly a Renegade human, mm-hmm. Paragon being Caden... Uh, Renegade being Ashley. They do the same thing with this game. Jacob yeah. is your Paragon human. And the next person we're going to meet after Shepard fights his fights her way through the uh, the Cerberus station is Miranda Lawson. We're introduced to Miranda after she, like, we, we end up, like, picking up this other engineer who's, like, trying to escape as well. But it turns out he was the traitor and it was activated all the robots to kill everybody. And mm-hmm. Miranda found out and shoots him in the face. <laughs> Just to set the tone. She's a she's a person who takes no prisoners, and that's probably the coolest thing Miranda will ever do. Poor Miranda gets done dirty by this game. And the boy, next game. she does. Oh boy. So Miranda Lawson, Miranda Lawson is a human artificially created as a weird clone of her incredibly wealthy father. Miranda was genetically engineered to be the specimen of human perfection, and this is her description, basically down to intelligence, looks, biotics, and everything in between. Like, she talks about, like, how her looks were specifically tailored to be the most attractive and everything, mm-hmm. and it's a little strange, but... A little bit, yeah. She claims she can shoot anything from 100 meters away and can heal much faster and live longer than others. She's incredibly cocky because of this. Which makes it funny that in-game, she's really not great at any of those things. <laughs> she's a mid-tier biotic compared to the other members you can get. And as far as, like, doing, like, the whole shooty part, Jacob is so much better than her. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of it's kind of sad. It's like, oh, you poor thing. It also she never like does anything cool again. Like even she, outside of gameplay, she never shoots or biotics or outwits or does anything very no. well. And the one time this is getting way ahead of ourselves, but the one time where you can put her into a position where she can do that, mm-hmm. she gets everybody killed. Yeah. But obviously we'll talk about that when we get to that. Right. So Miranda's father was an incredibly overbearing and had like ex- expectations of perfection from her and was incredibly controlling of her life. Eventually she fled and was found by Cerberus who recruited her in exchange for their protection. And she eventually rose in the ranks to become the right hand man to the elusive man who is the leader of the Cerberus. So we run into her and like, you know, she's obviously very cocky and kind of dismissive of Shepard in a weird way for mm-hmm. doing everything she possibly could to make sure Shepard was still alive. But regardless, they all end up leaving. Uh, they escape and they go and to another Cerberus space station. This is where we end up talking to the leader of Cerberus, who we never directly meet, by the name of the Elusive Man. Uh, so the yes. Elusive Man is an enigmatic man of unknown origins who is both modeled after and played by Martin Sheen, who does, I think, a pretty great job. I like it. I like yeah. his performance a hell of a lot. I do too. 
The only thing we really know about him is that he's the founder of Cerberus, and he was born sometime before first contact with Eternia. So he's, he's pretty old. Uh, he definitely has cybernetic implants. He has weird glowy eyes. Mm-hmm. And he's apparently responsible for a ton of events that happen, or at least Cerberus is. Uh, this includes creating the first human biotics by sabotaging and detonating ships with um, mass effect drives over colonies so they would get basically <laughs> irradiated. <laughs> as well as political assassinations to get, like, Earth-first politicians in positions of power. Uh, these are all explained in, like, comics and whatnot that we're not going to get too much into detail because they don't really matter that much. But right. This just gives you a little bit of background what the elusive man is capable of. Now, while he was doing all this to advance humanity's interest, with the appearance of the Reapers, he basically did a 180. It was like, okay, no, I'm not going to bother with that. Our mission is to deal with these people, Mm -hmm. these people being the Reapers. He's a very pragmatic man, and so he's willing to work with other species to quell threats as he sees fit. And he's going to be instrumental in basically putting together a largely alien crew for Shepard to work with in order to take on the Reapers. So, Lucid Man talks to Shepard and manages to convince Shepard that, hey, we need your help. We're the only ones you can trust to deal with the Reapers, and I'm going to prove it by basically bringing back everybody you like. Mm-hmm. So, he recruits Dr. Chocolate to be the ship's doctor, and he also brings back our buddy Joker. Yeah! Which, I didn't talk about Joker at all in the, pre- the previous game, because although he's fun and he actually has a lot of really good lines, mm-hmm. it's not really that important. No, not really. From this game on, though, it's very important. Mm-hmm. Some of the where was like, oh, people really like Seth Green. Yeah. We should, uh, we, should, we should up Joker's role. Yeah, and I was one of them. Yes. So Jeff Joker Moreau is the pilot of the SSV Normandy uh, in the previous game. He's an excellent pilot who basically was crippled at a young age because of a basically a genetic condition that causes his bones to basically be like bird bones, but mm-hmm. only in the lower half of his body. So because of that, he wasn't really able to walk or do much physical activity. But because of that, he entered flight school. And it turns out he was the best pilot the Alliance Navy had. Hence why he ended up getting posted out to Normandy. Very, very sarcastic and guy who has a huge chip on his, his uh, shoulder he is he's a person who's like he comes off as annoying but in a way that is kind of endearing mm-hmm. like he's his jokes are just like his jokes are just bad enough that you're like okay no nah, i'm, I'm kind of on board with you yeah I, again he is played by seth green and anyone who knows seth green uh he's a seth green character yeah yeah totally 100 percent uh seth green being one of the minds behind robot chicken mm-hmm. so Lucid Man basically just ushers him into the room. And, like, he shows up and, like, Shepard's like, oh, man, Joker. And then everyone else, everyone else is also like, oh, man, Joker. Like, <laughs> I was like, Joker, fantastic. Yeah. And Joker's, like, pretty pleased with, like, with Cerberus. Like, they basically have done, like, operations on his legs. So he can just sort of walk around a little bit without crutches. Like, can't right. do anything crazy. And he's more impressed, though, because they have rebuilt the Normandy and made it better than ever. Mm-hmm. So the Normandy is back. It has painted cool- it black this time. Oh, yes. It it looks cool. It looks it's, really it's, cool. It's really cool. It's great. So Shepard is now in charge of a new Normandy and, for the most part, has her old crew back together, uh, except for all the cool aliens. It's right. actually kind of funny because, like, Shepard, like, questions, like, the elusive man's like, well, why can't I have my crew back? And he's like, well, they all have either thought you're dead and moved on with their lives or we just don't know where they are. <laughs> 
and like you can go through one on one and they're like eventually Shepard's like okay fine whatever I guess I'll hang out with Jacob and Miranda sure like Rex just kind of left yeah pretty much <laughs> yeah Rex is like I'm gonna go and just lead my people now yeah because I'm the only one with <laughs> brains around here apparently <laughs> pretty much uh, I do really like this setup with the elusive man is not saying like it does establish that Cerberus is pretty shady and like mm. not morally fantastic. And it doesn't try to make you be on Cerberus's side. It just presents you with the elusive man being like, okay, you know that we're actually going to do the things we say we're going to do. Yeah. So you can trust us literally that far. And that's about the best you've got right now. Pretty much. Like, he presents this as a choice, like, hey, listen, he, it basically is like, hey, we're the, we may not be the morally right choice, but we're the best choice. Right. Because, like, what's the council going to do about the Reapers? Let me, let me tell you this. They're going to do jack shit. Yep. I'm going to give you shit, but I'm going to give you explicit orders to go after him in every possible resource you want. I, I, I believe he's even like, here's the ship. Go to the Citadel and talk to the council and see what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. And that goes predictably well. <laughs> But before we get to that, he does give him a, a mission to go to the Colony of Freedom's Progress, a human colony that's in the Terminus systems, which are kind of like the Wild West of the galaxy. Right. Because apparently all hu of humans have, like, disappeared from there. They just completely are gone. And this has been happening to human colonies all over the place. And the elusive man thinks this is because of a species called the Collectors. The Collectors being weird bug-like aliens that just sort of show up and, like— They'll trade, like, organics, like, there's technology for organic specimens. And basically don't really communicate beyond that. So, Shepard and team go down to Freedom's Progress. And, yeah, they find that, yeah, there's absolutely nothing there. However, they do find that, like, all the like, assault droids there have been activated. <laughs> and so they have to, like, fight their way through. And they do eventually, though, run into Tally. Turns out she happens to be there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so Tally's there. And she's like, hey, Shepard. Wait, why are you with these jackasses? And also alive. Yeah, it's like, you literally burned up in the atmosphere. You shouldn't be alive, <laughs> but okay, I guess. So it turns out that she's there looking for another Quarian who was stationed there on, like, he, was, he went there on his pilgrimage and witnessed the entire attack, but managed to hide and keep away from the collectors. And so Tally and Shepard work together. They find this Corian, and you can make the decision, like, to send the Corian back with Tally or send them back with Cerberus to be studied. Mm. Uh, there's really only one right choice here. Yeah. But either way, you get a um, a recording in, like, data files that kind of, like, explain what was going on and that, yeah, the collectors kind of just showed up and grabbed the humans and left. Like, they somehow paralyzed them, and you're not really sure how that happened. So, like, now it's... Now you have to figure out how to do that. And this is where the elusive man tasks Shepard to basically put together a team. Mm -hmm. And this is the big part of the game is you're now going to go and more or less recruit everybody until you get enough people that you go on a, another mission and then you recruit some more people, go on another mission. And that's kind of the loop of the game. Yeah. So the elusive man gives Shepard a bunch of uh, files and the vast majority of files point to this space station called Omega, which is basically a very, very lawless place that uh, uh, looks like some indication that the Collectors had been there because a plague is just ripping through there, only killing uh, non-human species. 
And so Shepard is tasked to go in there to figure out what's going on with that and also recruit two people that are there. So Shepard goes down there. You meet this uh, Asari by the name of Arya, who <laughs> I go back and forth on whether or not I like Arya or not. Ar- yeah. Arya is the girl boss of Omega. She basically shows up and like literally gets up and yells, I am Omega, before sitting down being like, Shepard, you suck. Go do all my dirty work. <laughs> She's yeah. a character, like, she grew on me. Yeah. But, like, yeah, like, your first impression of her is, like, oh, but I'm, I am literally, I am literally Commander Shepard. I right. don't feel like I have to deal with this. Yeah, she's a fun asshole, but mm-hmm. your, Shepard's whole deal is just beating up assholes and yeah. not dealing with them. So it's like, I don't have to deal with this, but I guess I will for reasons. Yeah, I guess this time I have to, so fine, I suppose. So you do help out uh, Arya, and she does kind of give you an idea of where these two people you can recruit are. And so we'll go ahead and start with probably my, well, both of these are my favorite, Mm. really. Mm. So actually, we'll start with my least favorite of the two, which is, once again, is still my second favorite. Right. So there is this character called Archangel, and apparently Archangel assembled this team and has been just ripping through the different crime organizations that are all over Omega. But he's apparently finally been cornered. And his team is dead. <laughs> and all the crime organizations have gotten together have made a truce to go and get him. So Shepard goes in, basically manages to successfully sneak in and, you know, meet up with Archangel, who immediately reveals himself to be Garrus Vicarian. <laughs> so Garrus is back. Yeah. And apparently he has become Space Punisher. Sure. Which is rad. <laughs> So after Shepard's apparent death, Garrus decided to follow in Shepard's footsteps and either try to rejoin C-Sec or the Spectres. But either way, they like once it became clear they weren't going to do anything about the Reapers, he was like, screw this. I'm just going to leave and go do my own thing. And so he decided to just recruit his own team of badasses. Right. And then went to Omega to just start basically murdering his way to the top. <laughs> Which I don't know how that's supposed to help with the Reapers, but okay. I mean, it's something to yeah. do. Yeah. You get the feeling that Garrus is very lost in this game as yeah. far as what his purpose is. And a lot of this game and like what you're doing with him is to kind of shake him out of that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he apparently became even more badass and an even better sniper. And like to the point that like he's in this like weird apartment by himself and has been holding off these three different crime organizations by himself for like 24 hours. <laughs> and so you show up and you basically help fight him off. And, like, Garrus does get, like, horrifically wounded, but it turns out he's fine. Yeah. Dr. Chalkless patches him up. He has a cool story. He's, like, Scar and whatnot. He's like, yeah, you know, I heard women love this. <laughs> you laugh and go, ah, Garrus, you're going to join my team. I know him with Cerberus. He's like, yeah, you're Commander Shepard. Like, hell yeah, I am. <laughs> I have no problems with this. <laughs> Garrus basically exists to, like, have incredibly awesome quips and occasionally break your balls a bit. And that's Pretty great. much, yeah. So this is going to be the first one where I'm going to talk about the loyalty mission as well. So in this game, you have, once you recruit a character, you have an additional mission you could do with them that are called loyalty missions. If you do them, you usually unlock additional skills for them, and it's also very important for the end game. And it usually just kind of fleshes out their character a little bit. Mm -hmm. In Garrus's case, you actually track down the person who betrayed his team and got them all killed, which is another Tyrion by the name of Sidonis, who was a part of Garrus's team, but then sold them out. So you, like, track him down to the Citadel, and 
Garrus is like, I am going to murder the hell out of this person. And you can choose to either just straight up help Garrus, which he'll do, or you can actually stand in the way of the shot and like talk to Sedonis, who was just completely broken at this point. He's a ghost of his former self, racked with guilt beyond measure. And Garrus eventually himself like gets overwhelmed. It's like his like own sense of morality kind of peeks in. He's like, yeah, this ain't right. He's like, fine, let him go. Let him go. Mm-hmm. And like he's like pretty pissed at you for a second. But eventually, like, he thinks about it. He's like, nah, you're right. That, that was the right thing. I, right. What I was doing on Omega really probably wasn't the right thing to do. You know, probably shouldn't just take justice to my hands. And, like, he, he mentions, like, it's so much easier to see the world in black and white. But with Grey, I don't know what to do with Grey. Mm-hmm. He like, basically pledges to, like, kind of figure out a way through that. Right. And eventually he'll figure that out in Mass Effect 3. Garrus actually has a pretty satisfying arc to him. I think so, yeah. So we recruit him. That's great. Now we need to go recruit the other person who's dealing with the plague that's ripping through Omega. This person is a Solarian by the name of Morden Solus. Yes. He may damn well be the best character ever written. Might in be. Certainly up there. You were first introduced by Morden when you walk into his medical clinic and somebody's trying to shake him down and he just immediately murders that person. <laughs> Morden Solis is a Solarian geneticist, doctor, scientist, and thespian. He is a former member of the Solarian Special Task Group, uh, essentially their Navy SEALs or CIA equivalent, and he's incredibly gifted in both the ability to heal and murder. (laughs) Now, you might be thinking from that introduction, oh, that means he's, like, really angry and wrathful and emotional. No. No. He is not. No. That murder was not emotionally motivated. It was entirely practical. That murder was, oh, you are trying to shake me down for medical supplies that are needed for people. I know how to handle this problem. Therefore, you must go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, barely thinks about it. This, which makes him perfect for the STG, because when he was with them, he was focused on developing a modification to the genophage. Remember that? That little mm-hmm. thing that they used to sterilize the Krogan? Yep. Well, it turns out within a couple of generations, the Krogan were developing a uh, resistance to it. And so the Solarians were like, oh, we need to fix this. Mm-hmm. So Morden's team was responsible for coming up with a new batch that would limit reproduction to a sustainable replacement level without outright dooming them. So they managed to succeed, and Morden was, like, delighted about this. However, his delight, like, eventually changed a bit. And as, like, you talk with him more and more, he get the feeling that he was kind of questioning the ethics of his decision. Mm-hmm. Like, eventually, like, he even talks about, like, you know, I had kind of, like, a crisis of faith. You know, like, he went through different religions. Like, he, like, he explored Buddhism, like, different Solarian religions. I think he, like, even looked at, like, Turian religions as well. Mm-hmm. Like, and it, like, attempts to, like, make peace. But eventually, it's like, I couldn't find anything. So he, he left the STG, and he went to Omega to run a clinic. He's, like, he found it much easier to just focus his energy on treating patients. Like, mm-hmm. He's a master of avoidance. He didn't want to deal with how he was feeling, and so he decided to throw himself into work. Right. We'll get into his loyalty mission in a bit, but needless to say, his loyalty mission is incredibly, incredibly important. Point is, though, is that we find him on Omega, and he's like, hey, I'll work with you, but I gotta solve this plague first that's affecting literally every species but humans. Mm -hmm. Which makes it funny if you bring along Garrus, because he's like, oh shit (laughs) (laughs) he even like starts coughing halfway through he's like oh great i'm gonna die aren't i (laughs) and he's surprisingly not in plus about it which is pretty great 
we find like he actually manages to develop a cure for it. It's like, okay, we just need to go to like these vents and put them in there and just distribute them. So you go, you have to fight through like a bunch of like Batarian gangs for some reason. I forget the reason why. Yeah. It's Batarians, it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, they're just being jerks. And you put the cure in there, you cure everybody, and Morden's like, all right, cool. Yeah, sure, I'll join your team. I'm, I got to work on finding a way to stop the collectors from freezing people. Perfect, I can do that. Yeah. Seems like an interesting thing to do. <laughs> so he ends up joining your team, and you end up leaving Omega. So you get a couple more uh, dossiers to look into. And the first one of these is to go and recruit a Krogan. But not Rex, because Rex, at this point, has gone back to the planet Chuchanka, the home planet of the Krogans, in order to basically unite the clans and just kind of... He kind of got his groove back Mm -hmm. after fighting Saren and whatnot. And he's like, you know what? No, I'm going to take leadership, and I am going to see about focusing on breeding and just rebuilding our society and not just murdering each other. And he's doing a good job of that. Like, he's basically united all the clans and whatnot, and they actually have, like, a central unified government now. Like, he... In two years, Rex has done a lot of real good stuff. But the point is, he's busy now. Yep. So instead, you are tasked with finding a Krogan lore lord by the name of Okir. A Krogan so old that he actually fought during the Krogan rebellions. <laughs> because once again, Krogan can live for over 1,400 years. Yep. So you land on um, this planet called Corliss, and you fight through a bunch of, like, basically weird gangs and, like, also, like, weird genetically modified Krogans that are acting real real strange because they're just like kind of incomplete and you find out that okir was trying to create the perfect krogan and you finally do reach okir but unfortunately he's dead he ends up dying but you do end up taking one of his pods containing his ultimate soldier which uh after you activate the pod and whatnot uh he jumps out and immediately like chokes shepherd and you <laughs> find out his name is grunt yeah Grunt is a Krogan super soldier that contains the genetic legacies of some of the greatest Krogan warriors. Um, he's a young Krogan that basically was raised in a glass tube. And mm-hmm. upon his release, he's violent, untamed, and seemingly lacking purpose, which makes him very violent and very unpredictable. However, he respects Shepard because Shepard is really good at murdering people. And that's <laughs> the one thing he respects. Um, like, his introduction is really great because he basically holds you by the throat. He's like, I can kill you at any time. And then Shepard's like... Yeah, but you're not, because I am far more badass than you are. He's <laughs> like, I'd like to see you prove that. And you're like, got a gun to your stomach. And he's like, oh, so you do. All right, I actually do like you. All right, cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So his loyalty mission is basically he goes through Krogan puberty. <laughs> and Krogan puberty involves you getting incredibly angry and needing to find a purpose in life. So you actually go and visit Rex. And, like, talk to him. And, like, Rex is, like, super happy to see you. He's like, man, how's it going, buddy? Look, it's the biggest badass I ever met. Oh, you you brought a Solarian with you. Well, hmm. I mean, I'm going to trust him, but he's probably going to get murdered. You should have <laughs> left him on the ship. <laughs> but, yeah, like, he's like, oh, yeah, he needs to find a clan. Uh, Grunt does. And mm-hmm. he needs to, like, prove himself in battle. So Grunt goes and does that. He like he fights through a bunch of like Varen and other beasts. Like he defeats a Thresher Maw. He kills rebellious Krogan. And like Rex is like, I'm super impressed. Guess what? You're part of Clan or not now? Mm-hmm. And then Rex is like, and Grunt is like, Man, yeah, I feel so much more calm. I've made an enemies list. <laughs> <laughs> that means things are going well. Grunt's great. Grunt's great. He's not as great as Rex. I feel like no. he's like he, he's kind of like 
a simpler version of Rex. He kind of is. But that's still pretty fun. He's how Rex would be in his younger days. Yeah. So since we're on to Jonka, let's talk a little bit about Morden uh, some more and kind of finish up his loyalty mission. Mm -hmm. So Morden's loyalty mission starts with him getting a message that his old assistant, Malin, was captured by the Krogan clan Werelock on Tuchanka. So you go to Tuchanka, you talk with Rex, and like, hey, what about this clan Werelock people? It's like, yeah, I heard that they captured Solarian. You should probably go check that out. <laughs> Morden's like, this Solarian is a dead man. They find out he worked on the genophage, so we need to go and rescue him. Mm-hmm. So they fight through clan Werelock's base, which is a former Krogan hospital, and it becomes clear that they were very aware of Malon's past. It also becomes aware that they are working with Malon. Like, he's willingly working with the Krogan to reverse the genophage. Mm. And so, Morden at first is, like, horrified. He's like, hey, why would he do this? This seems ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And you start to see, like, some of the after effects. So, like, right. Clan Werelock have been kidnapping Krogans and other species, like, experiment on, but you also see that they have a lot of very willing experiments. Like, like uh, they have, like, a lot of Krogan females who were so desperate to have children that weren't stillborn, that were undergoing, like, horrific procedures in order to help reverse this. And you get to have, like, very in-depth conversations with with Morden, like, hey, was that the right thing to do? And, like, Morden, like, fights back heavily against us. Like, no, this was the right thing to do. If we didn't, they are able to breed at a sustainable level. It's fine. It's like, yeah, but they don't know that. Mm-hmm. And also, you can't really guarantee that that's actually going to work out because they are also killing each other at an alarming rate. Right. And also, like, there's just, like, a huge emotional trauma that this entire species is going through that we saw with Rex in the first game. Mm-hmm. And now we're also seeing the effects with, you know, these dead bodies, essentially. Right. right. And Morden, like, sits there and he's, like, like, he starts to have, like, a real come-to-Jesus moment. Because this is really the first time where he's had to really sit down and actually think about it. Right. Like, he tried, tried to dodge earlier with religion. He tried to dodge earlier by taking care of people on Omega. But now he's just faced with it. Right. So, I, this is one of the reasons Morden is such a great character. Is He yeah. is an absolute pragmatist. Like, mm-hmm. he, he is very objective, very analytical, very data-driven. But he is not devoid of emotion or sympathy no he just operates in a way where it's usually easy to get around it or rationalize it or focus on other things he's the best version of the character you see often in Mm sci-fi where it's a character is like well we did it because we could we're scientists right and then you have somebody go like but you should have thought about the implications and they never explore it further right morden is the one case where they do explore it further and it's for great effect Mm mm-hmm and yeah, like the entire the entire mission is literally some of the best Mass Effect Two has to offer. Yeah, and you get to the end and you find Malon and you they have a huge argument. Like Malon's very much like, no, what we did was wrong. This was not right, and I am trying to undo the mistakes that we've done. We, I'm trying to undo the genocide we've done. Mm-hmm. And like Morden will eventually convince him, hey, listen, you either leave or I shoot you, and I am taking your research. And then you can help him make the decisions like is he going to destroy the research or is he going to keep it and he doesn't like have a complete breakthrough he's like you know i'm going to keep a hold of it Uh, i'm going to study i'm going to see you know maybe there's some good data in here i don't know Mm -hmm. but you can clearly see the wheels turn like right you know maybe this isn't right right morden's some of the best writing once again is in this section morden really shines as a character and Mm -hmm. it really like 
we're gonna go i'm gonna gush a little bit more uh more than right now but like when you interact with him on normandy like he's also just like kind of a funny character yeah because he's so pragmatic and so rapid speaking uh-huh. and and whatnot like there's a really good section where he he like reveals that he performed like Gilbert and Sullivan <laughs> and like like does like a rehearsed bit from it that's like incredibly great. Mm-hmm. Like he, he tries to give you dating advice, which is fantastic. <laughs> uh, he's yeah, like oh, he's all, so good. Morden's like writing is genuinely hilarious. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like it's the kind it's a kind of comedy that's really easy to do, just eye rollingly stale. Yeah. But it's actually just genuinely good. Yeah, it is so, so damn good. So damn good. But yeah, we're going to be talking a little bit about more about Morden, because Morden actually factors an awful lot into the actual overall plot of Mass Effect 2, more so than some of your other characters. Mm-hmm. But that's that's more or less his deal in this game, and it's it's a very good deal. Yeah. So you recruit Grunt, and then you go and to this prison planet, well, really more prison colony, literal space colony in order to get recruit this human woman by the name of jack who's an incredibly powerful biotic mm-hmm. uh, originally it's just arranged that she'll be released into your custody but then it turns out the warden uh, wants to actually sell her off to the highest bidder and also captures shepherd for a bounty that's on her head <laughs> so you have to fight your way through a prison in a mission that's an awful lot of fun yeah it's a fun mission and you end up recruiting jack Jack is a character that uh, I think I overall like her writing. I think so. Yeah. There's going to be some issues in there that I'm going to I'm going to elucidate on right now actually. <laughs> Jack, known as Subject 0, is a well-known criminal that is known for being incredibly distrusting of everyone around her, mostly because her entire life is being has been defined by being abused and betrayed by everyone around her. She was kidnapped by Cerberus when she was just a child and was basically put through a ton of experiments in a faraway research facility alongside other children that had a biotic potential. She's incredibly powerful. And because of that, she was kept separate from other children and staff that was ostensibly to like, keep them safe. But given the room was fitted with a one-way mirror and was also soundproof, it was also just like a control method on her. Mm-hmm. They were basically trying to break her. Right. Now, she was tortured daily sleep deprivation, all sorts of awful things, and eventually a giant riot ensued that allowed her escape. She eventually like ran with a bunch of gangs, all of whom usually betrayed her in the end. And this is... I may do a trigger warning for this. I may not, because uh, we're not going to really talk about this because this is the worst part of her writing. Mm-hmm. She is another example of a really, really bad character trope that is applied to you know, you know, badass female characters where she was raped. Uh huh. And she then, of course, got her revenge, that whole rape and revenge trope. It is the most useless thing, and I don't know why it was added. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's very stupid. Uh, she ends up joining Shepard's crew in exchange for access to Cerberus files on her. And um, her loyalty mission actually involves her going back to the facility and blowing it up and kind of like learning that she has like a lot of resentment towards the other children there. Mm hmm thinking that they were just, like, making fun of her and whatnot, and she finds out that, no, they were just as tortured and maladjusted as she was. Right. And upon destroying the facility, she actually resolves that she needs to, like, maybe track down these people and, like, help them. She actually has a very interesting romance subplot that I think is, for the most part, well done. I... 
We'll talk about all the different romance options later, but I figure I might as well highlight Jack now because Jack mm-hmm. is one of the characters who you can give in to her assumptions about you very easily. Mm-hmm. And she will immediately hate you for it. Right. And you'll fail her loyalty mission completely. Um, or you could actually like treat her like a human being and um, and actually like kind of like dig into like her emotional state and whatnot in a way that uh, I-, I think is for the most part well done. I-, I think they they chose a very difficult type of character to write. Yeah, and I I think there is a little credit to be given for treating it with at least some level of nuance besides the really really stupid thing involving the rape. Um. But they they don't land it completely with her, unfortunately. Yeah, like you say, it's a hard character to do, and Bioware's pretty good at character writing, but they're not, like, the unassailable masters of it. No. So they, they were basically never going to get it perfect. No. Um, yeah, in general, I think she's fine. She's pretty good. She definitely has her moments. I almost find her more interesting like as an exploration of this idea of biotics mm-hmm. which were really sort of barely touched on in mass effect one they're very throwaway yeah and then in this one it's like okay well what if that was actually something and you mm-hmm. sort of explore that through jack but also then you get into like the fire starter style human experimentations and you know what if what if we artificially accelerated this or, you know, did things to make this into a weaponize it, etc. Mm-hmm. As far as exploring the character underneath that, it's fine. Yeah, it's fine. It's it, it's it's fine. Like some missteps here and there, but yeah. It I have definitely seen worst attempts at that type of character. Yeah. I oh yeah. Practically in practically every other game. Like any other game that even tries that that character trope, they they do a terrible job at it. Yeah, pretty much. So you end up recruiting all these characters. Um, oh, and I, I think I mentioned that, yeah, she joins the team because she wants to... Yeah, I did mention mm-hmm. that, that she wants the files from Cerberus and whatnot. Which, right. In the event you're wondering why she joins Cerberus <laughs> when they have tortured her for most of her childhood, there, there is a reason. Yeah. So you get all this, and then like the Ulysses man's like, hey, listen, man, another colony. We think it's about to get hit called horizon it's another human colony we need you to go and check that out so you go and check out this colony and yeah it turns out they're in the midst of a collector attack and you find out well you don't find out immediately but you see that the vermeyer the vermeyer survivor so either caden or ashley actually was dispatched there by the systems alliance to help um protect that colony before you get dispatched there you do like confer of morden's like hey do you know how to not get frozen by the collector attacks and it turns out they're using like little bugs that basically paralyze people Mm -hmm. and warden's like yeah don't worry i figured that out that was no problem (laughs) so you go down there and this is the first time you come face and face face to face with the collectors which once again bug-like people but you also see that they one of them will always be like glowy and controlled Mm -hmm. and this is not communicated to shepherd but it is communicated to player a voice by the name of Harbinger that sounds very Reaper-like <laughs> is basically able to assume control. Right. And when it does, it basically superpowers that collector and is allowed to like lead the other collectors into battle. And so Shepard has to like fight through all of these in order to like save what little hu- humanity hasn't already been collected by the 
well, collectors. And so you managed to like successfully drive them off, get a few samples here and there, and kind of figure out a few things that are going on. And once you do all of that, you're then confronted by the Vermeyer survivor, which whether that's Kaden or Ashley, who are like initially like very happy to see you, but then are also immediately like, yo, why the hell are you working with Cerberus? Mm-hmm. You know they're terrorists. <laughs> and it's like, well, you know, but they're the only ones who are willing to do anything. And they also kind of revived me, so I kind of owe them. And just like, no, I, I, I can't accept this. It's like, come on, why don't you join my team? It's like, nope, not doing this. It doesn't matter if you romance them or not. Right. They're like, you suck. Watch your back. I got to go report this. Right. Like, it also doesn't matter if you, like, you bring, like, Garrus along. Like, Garrus could be like, hey, no, nah, don't worry. They're cool. I'm here. I'm Garrus. Everyone's <laughs> friend. And they're like, Garrus, you're an idiot. I'm gone. <laughs> so throughout the game, you get emails from people that, um, you have, like, uh, basically, essentially a secretary by the name of Kelly Chambers, who has some issues, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. who um, will, like, tell you when you get emails or whatnot. And uh, usually they're from, like, other characters that you maybe saved the previous game or whatnot, or just, like, a kind of follow-up on, like, a side quest you did. If you if you have Caden be the character who lived and you're a female shepherd, regardless of whether you... Um, I think this might have been a glitch mm-hmm. or not, but, like, if you... Um, you get maybe the ah oh, the sweatiest of letters from him where he's like, <laughs> man, when I saw you, everything stopped. The ship came hard to port. I couldn't believe you're alive. I remember what we did meant something, but to see you work at a service, I just don't know. Stay safe out there. I hope to see you again. It's like, Caden, man, mm-hmm. I rejected your ass hard. What are you doing, son? <laughs> oh, don't send letters like this to your crushes. Oh... Uh... Poor Caden. Poor Caden. Just can't catch a break with the whole being Caden thing. He can't. He's on, he's on screen for <laughs> like when he like when he's like chastising Shepard for like doing the things that she does. Like he actually, it's actually kind of a good scene because he like, he mm-hmm. makes good points. Like you are you know who you're working for, right? Right. But then yeah, he sends the letter and it's like, oh, Caden, oh. buddy, I want to tap you on the shoulder. <laughs> so get all that done and like they need to analyze the samples and like the footage that they got and so lucid man's like hey go and recruit more people here's some more dossiers and so you go to this new planet called uh ilium which is a asari planet but it's basically like the asari bureaucratic planet where basically all the asari do their shady business dealings (laughs) and you're told to recruit a couple more people including well, both of them are actually really good characters that I like, but we'll go ahead and start with probably the most unique of them, and that's Thane. Mm. So you're told to recruit a Drell assassin, <laughs> and so you like fight through this like tower in order to get to a crime boss, who actually is a reference to a a character that you met in the previous game, and like it's a really really good set piece that you fight through. You could push, you could push a person off a building. <laughs> After he asked him, it was like, can I go now? And you say, how about goodbye? <laughs> it's really cheesy and I love it. You get all the way up to the top and like you witness this uh, assassin uh, murder this crime boss. And like he prays over her and whatnot. And he then introduces himself as Thane Krios. Thane Krios is an assassin, uh, part of a species known as the Drell, which are reptile-like humanoids from a dry desert planet. Uh, their species more or less was on the brink of destroying each other because their planet was re- like just wasn't resource heavy, so they just couldn't achieve space travel. 
Mm-hmm. But then Hanar showed up and we were like, this one looks very useful. You have thumbs. Why don't you come <laughs> live on our planet? <laughs> and so they basically took them to the planet. And as part of this thing called a compact, they can give up their children to the Hanar to be trained as special forces to basically do their bidding. Mm-hmm. And so Thane was one of those. So at the age of six, he became, well, he was put into training to become one of their best assassins, and he totally did. Uh, he eventually met his wife actually on a hit when she threw herself in front of his target. Uh, he became obsessed with her, fell in love, and eventually he like he left um, the Hanar, the services in Hanar, and became a freelance assassin. It was really good. Uh, he accidentally killed uh, a Batarian lore- warlord, and as his followers kind of tracked down his wife, he killed him. Mm-hmm. And in a very um, John Wick sort of way, he basically basically got his revenge very, very slowly. Right. He had a son with her by the name of Koyat that he basically gave to some aunts and uncles and was just like, just take care of him while I do this. So he got done with all that. Uh, during this time, because he lived on this very humid planet, he developed a disease that more or less was slowly turning his lungs into mush. Mm-hmm. And so he's terminal by the time you meet him. Mm-hmm. And so between the fact that he has more or less been murdering for a living, he's a highly spiritual person, and the fact that he was not really a good father, he's like, I'm going to go on with you on your mission to maybe hopefully atone for something. Maybe if I stop the Reapers, my life will have meaning. Thane mm-hmm. is a cool dude. I like him a lot. I like Thane a lot. I should clarify, I like Thane a lot in Mass Effect 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mass Effect 3, he's still pretty cool doesn't doesn't get to be as much of a thing he doesn't although he is part of he is part of maybe one of the best dunks on kai lang that's fair that's true so he he at least has that going he does have that going that's good so yeah yeah, mass effect 2 thane's great yeah thane is thane is fantastic um thane also can be romanced by a female shepherd which i did (laughs) fair 100 percent. yep that's fair so Thane's loyalty mission involves him basically tracking down his son because he finds out his son's more or less trading on his name, found out his father was a legendary assassin. So he's like, I'm going to be an assassin too, just so I can maybe like have a connection with him somehow because he was a terrible father. And so they track him down to the Citadel. And after interrogating a, um, a criminal by the name of Elias, in actually one of the best moments in Mass Effect, one of the best small moments... Mm-hmm. Uh, your renegade bar is 100% filled, you can actually interrogate him. And, like, you're supposed to play good cop and bad cop, like one of you being good cop, the other being bad cop. Right. But if you're at 100%, you can just walk up to him and be like, hey, I'm a specter. I need to know where this person is. Mm-hmm. He's like, ah, you're not a specter and you won't shoot me. He's like, and you're just like, yeah, I'm above the law. I can do whatever I want. Am I clear? He's like, Crystal. <laughs> and he just tells you everything. And as you're leaving... <laughs> Things like that must I must that must have been the shortest interrogation I've ever been a part of. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, it's yeah. so good. It's so good. So yeah, you find out that uh, Koyat has been tasked with murdering a Turian politician. And he almost manages to do so in the sloppiest way possible, but you and Thane manage to stop him. Mm-hmm. Um Thane and Koyat then have like a pretty extensive argument where Koyat basically tells him, You were never a father. Mm-hmm. You were never in my life. Mm-hmm. This is the only way I could possibly learn why you did this or why you were doing this. And then you're able to convince Citadel Security to maybe basically put him on probation for right. attempted murder. <laughs> which, th- that just shows you how much pull Shepard has, I guess. Yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> and yeah, they um, they end up having like an off-screen talk and, le- and like things like, yeah, not everything's fixed. Basically nothing is really fixed, mm-hmm. but 
we're talking and we're gonna try yeah that's that's one like i like this entire loyalty mission i think it's really well done um but i do really like that moment of yeah no we didn't we couldn't fix this in 10 minutes yeah like but we're i i got to talk to him and we're starting Mm -hmm. to talk now and that's a lot it is it is and it's really good when you um you get an email from uh, this person captain bailey who's in csec Mm-hmm. And he tells you, he's like, yeah, I talked to talk to your drill friend. And it's like, hey, listen, because he also has an estranged, uh, I think a strange daughter or something like that. Yeah. He's like, hey, I told him, listen, talk to him, cherish him, because the only one he got. It's mm-hmm. like, I'm not sure if it stuck, but I hope it did. And it's like, that like all ties it together really well. And it's yeah. like, yeah, it, it's a really well done loyalty mission. So, yeah, uh, you, so you end up recruiting him. And you're about to go recruit your other member when you find out that Liara is on this planet. All and right. boy, Liara. Oh boy, yeah. Oof. So Liara in the previous game was a character who um, basically she was very, very, I wouldn't call her naive, but she, she was like a little sheltered. She wasn't really used to like combat or anything like that. Mm-hmm. She was shy. Yep. And, you know, very fascinated with Shepard. And in this game... I guess the two years that Shepard's been away has really changed her. <laughs> she is now trying to track down somebody called the Shadow Broker, who basically is an information broker that nobody knows who that is. Right. And she has become a hard ass. <laughs> like, take no prisoners. I will murder anybody to get to the top. I forgot wait, this game got a fair bit edgier. It did. Yeah, this, this game is like, look, all the surfaces are dirty. It's, it's that level. Yeah. Yeah, every character now has a hard edge, mm-hmm. except somehow Rex. <laughs> Which, to be fair, when you start out as incredibly coarse sandpaper, you only have one place to go. Pretty back. much, yeah. And yeah, so like, you like can talk to her. It's like, hey, you really changed. I mean, I'm gonna help you out finding out who's like trying to betray you because she's like, I basically an information broker herself. Mm-hmm. And um, like, if you have like, if you're a romancer in a previous game. You can you don't really continue the romance here, but you can be like, man, you've really changed. I really wouldn't expect this out of you, which does have her like throw back in your face, like, yeah, and I didn't expect you to join Cerberus, but look where we're at, I guess, huh? Yeah. Mm. It's like, well, you've kind of got me there. Yep, a little bit. But yeah, like it. It's just re- It's a really weird character change. I, I don't. I don't think it's impossible for her to have this change, but it, it did seem like they wanted to just do something different. Yeah. With Liara. I I would say Liara is a perfectly fine character in each mass effect in isolation Mm -hmm. her arc over the trilogy is a a mess she is kind of three different characters yes yeah so this is going to be all we're going to really talk about liara uh, until we get to the dlc Mm -hmm. Liara, the shadow broker but she's here and that's cool yeah so you end up going and uh to recruit your actual asari companion and it's this person by the name of Samara, an Asari Justicar. Justicar is already a Asari equivalent of a Spectre in that they follow a strict moral code and are above the law. She is a former mercenary late in life She had who had like children with an Asari mate, which is kind of a no-no. And uh, this resulted in, in a rare genetic condition happening to her children called Ardak Yashi, where basically instead of like when you like meld with a person when Asari does, like it's usually a very pleasant experience. When Ardak Yashi does it, it kills them, which is a problem. So she managed to somehow have that happen to all three of her children. So because <laughs> of that, she was like, well, 
I'm just gonna go become a Justicar and give up everything in my life. When you do meet her, she's, like, investigating something, and, like, she basically kills somebody, and so, like, she has to be arrested. And she's like, okay, that's fine. I still need to track down my, my primary target, so you can hold me for three days. But after three days, officer, I am going to have to break out, <laughs> and, I ha and I will murder you. And, like, this Asari officer's like, oh, geez, um, well, what? And, like, you can question, it's like, well, what if you just let her go after three days? And then Samara's, I think it's, like, literally Samara's, like, that she is breaking the law and I must murder her. <laughs> and it's like, it's like, oh, geez. Yeah, so this poor cop is like, hey, can, you, can you solve this murder for me and exonerate her? Really appreciate it. <laughs> and so you, you do. Uh, in a really, really great mission, it involves a Volus who was incredibly high on Element Zero, if I remember correctly. That's, that's, he thinks he's a right. god. Yeah. <laughs> And um, once you do that, though, like, Samara's like, oh, great. Well, I guess uh, I don't have to murder you, officer. <laughs> She's like, yeah, great. <laughs> and Samara's like, I will go ahead and join you, but I want you to know I have to do my mission, which is to find my daughter, Morinith, and murder her. And it's like, wow, why are you doing that? Cause, and she's like, well, she's an Arakiyashi. And instead of just choosing to, like, cloister herself off, she's instead going around and basically murdering everyone via Asari sex. Mm -hmm. stop her. Which, that's her loyalty mission. You basically go and track down Morneth by basically acting as a honeypot, essentially? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, you lure her back, like, lure her into, like, to take her back to your, her apartment and whatnot, and then Samara busts in, like, last minute, and, like, they get into a big fight. And you can actually choose to either murder Samara or murder Morneth, yeah. which is interesting. Um... Uh, either way, you still have an Asari, you know, a very powerful Asari biotic. Mm -hmm. And if you have more in it, you can't eventually try to have <laughs> sex with her. If you do, you will die. Um, even though she's like, nah, listen, you're Shepard. You're probably strong enough. Don't worry don't, about don't it. Don't worry. It'll be fine. I do, I do appreciate that they put that option in the game. It's completely yeah, useless. It's completely useless. It just gives you a game over. Yep. It's awesome. Uh there are a lot of really interesting and well done and fascinating alien races in Mass Effect. Mm -hmm. And then there's the Asari. Yeah. Which I'm the, like almost. Almost. Yeah, they um they went the most gen generic possible they could. Yeah. They're like they're these are the sexy blue alien yeah. people. What if what if the it, elves were promiscuous? Yep. The end. There's a listen. There is a bad genetic thing that happens with them, and it only happens during sex. Yeah. Like, does it have to be during sex? Yes. yes. Okay. There's two things about the Asari. They live a long time, and they have a lot of sex. This game has a real. <laughs> this game has a real problem with just using using sex and violence and combining them together. Yeah. Yeah. Because we're not going to talk about Jacob's loyalty mission, but that also involves a lot of that. Mm. So oh, we will talk about Miranda's loyalty mission really quickly. So it turns out uh, Miranda has a twin sister who also is genetically perfect, but also looks nothing like her. <laughs> That's right. Well, okay. Well, you're going to gene... If you're going to gene splice someone to be the perfect agent, like, you might as well go for some variety, I guess. Like there's, I guess. When it comes to beauty, there's multiple, like, versions of perfection. You know, you cater to different crowds or something. I don't... Man... Miranda would disagree with you. <laughs> yeah, but Miranda's <laughs> dumb. Yeah. 
So, um, speaking of sex in these games, um, Mass Effect 2 did get a bit of derisive nickname called uh, Ass Effect 2. Oh, yeah. And it's mostly because of the, the framing it does in this game, often when you're speaking to female characters, particularly Miranda. Particularly where, Miranda. For one reason or another, and they claim this was not intentional, which is bullshit. <laughs> they will put the camera at an angle where you have Shepard in full frame, like entire body, but it then places it as such where the only shot you'll have is Miranda's butt. And this happens multiple times in a way that is there's no way this is a coincidence. And it also pretty much happens exclusively to female characters. If you didn't intend it, then patch it out. Right? Patch it out, then. Which, Matt, the uh, Mass Effect uh, uh, Legendary Edition, uh, apparently they did change that. So, hey. Yes. Which problems... some people were very upset about. Oh, God, yeah. All the <laughs> people you would predict were yep. upset about it. So yeah, um, you have to go rescue Miranda's sister, and uh, basically her father finds out that because uh, like Miranda basically rescued her at some point mm -hmm. and put her with a family, and she's was growing up with them and does, doesn't know about her origins. Right. Her father finds out. You basically have to rescue her before um, before that happens. Yep. And um, other than an it it's not the world's best mission. Other than there is a really good scene where like I. Uh, you can like shoot down like basically a giant explosive barrel and like it explodes and then like a cutscene like one of the guys fighting against you is like a Solarian like he sees his buddy just fly past him he just gets horrified because <laughs> he knows what he's in for right he knows what's about to happen yeah but yeah eventually you do rescue um, rescue her and then you can convince Miranda to go hey maybe you should go and actually connect with your sister who's literally your only family right now mm -hmm. and actually know that there's somebody watching over her yeah which. Yeah, which you can, and, you know, you, you can see some emails back and forth between them, and it's, it's kind of nice. Yeah. No, I think it's a it's a pretty okay mission. It's, it is a good setup and a good storyline. I think mm. it would be really good if Miranda was a better character. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Like, it, it is like the, the one time Miranda gets to be done pretty well in the game. Mm -hmm. but it's so isolated that you're like that's that's a really good like vignette about someone i otherwise don't really care that much about yeah same same oh poor miranda yeah so you end up recruiting all of them and then you also get the uh, option to go and recruit tally as well mm -hmm. who is on this planet called haystrom like she's investigating along with another uh corian team like, why the sun there is just unexpectedly dying, even though it's very young. Uh, you run into a bunch of Geth. Like, her, most of her team gets murdered. And you end up, like, basically saving her and helping her fight through there and get the information she needs. And with that, she's like, okay, yeah, you know what? I'll go ahead and join your team. Mm -hmm. I, get, I am shocked I actually didn't mention this. There actually is one more character we have not talked about. And that's Edie. So... As part of the Normandy, there is this AI that yes. is on board by the name of Edie, which stands for something, but I can't be bothered to remember. Yeah. Edie is basically a female-voiced AI. It's a shackled AI, so it can only do so much, mm -hmm. that more or less controls a lot of these systems on the Normandy and has a very antagonistic relationship with Joker. <laughs> like, Joker's upset that anything would be in control of anything in the Normandy, right. and... Edie's very interested in, like, human emotions and, like, their disposition, so she'll constantly question Joker and just annoy him. <laughs> it's a very good relationship because they really warm up is. to each other. 
like like Joker hates Edie at the start, but at the end they're like, ah, they're fun. Yeah. They're the friends. No, but it's yeah. it's quite good. It's quite good. And it's even better when Tally joins the team mm-hmm. and she's like, Man, I don't trust any of you Cerberus fucks, let me tell you this <laughs> right now. And then Jacob's like, Don't worry about it. We're actually good. By the way, make sure to say hi to our AI. 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 <laughs> and she's like, Do you know nothing about my race? <laughs> Like, she shoots him a look, and you can't really see her face, but you know it's a death stare. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. Oh, man. So, Tally's loyalty mission, we're going to move through it very quickly. Uh, she basically is accused by the migrant th- fleet, the Korean migrant fleet, of being a traitor. She sent back a bunch of guest samples to her father, and then those came alive and murdered a bunch of people. Mm. Uh, so, he had to go back and clear her name, and it turns out her father activated those guests, and so he was at fault. Mm. Which Tally's like, please don't tell them that my father did this. I don't want his reputation to be ruined. Right. And basically, you can more or less convince them that, listen, you basically tell them, listen, Tally didn't do anything wrong. She's a good person. <laughs> and they go, yeah, probably. <laughs> or you can be like, okay, no, we didn't find any evidence. And then she gets exiled. Or um, you can also tell them that the dad did it, in which case it fractures the migrant fleet and Tally hates you forever. Right. It's it's a very, very good mission. I wish I we had time to give it the justice that it does deserve, mm-hmm. but... It's um, basically Tally ends up actually taking her last name switches when with whatever ship she's on, right? Mm-hmm. And she ends up taking the last name Voss Normandy because now the Normandy is her home. That's right. her family, which is kind of nice. It's like, yeah. yeah, you are family. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, Tally once again, great character. Great character. Like she becomes a lot more assertive in this game. Like previous game, mm-hmm. she was like a little bit more shy and reserved. Here, she's she's pretty important to the Korean people, and she shows it. Right. Like she's she takes charge. Right. Yeah, Tally is definitely one of the characters with a good arc over the course of the three games. At least these two? Yeah, yeah. I, I think she has, a, she has a decent enough arc in three as well. Yeah. Though it's, it's tied up in a wider arc that is, I think, very poorly done. So after all this is done, uh, Shepard is informed by the elusive man that a Turian patrol apparently engaged a collector ship and disabled it. And they're like, hey, we need to go and investigate that. That way we can figure out where they're coming from. So Shepard does that, and they find out it's the same collector vessel that blew up the Normandy and like attacked Horizon. And so like, oh, okay, we definitely need to get in there. They find that there's like millions of empty pods in there, though. And they're like, wait, this could hold literally every human in the Terminus systems. Like, there's like millions. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, man, what if they're targeting Earth with this? Like, what if they're trying to collect every human on Earth? Edie like does a scan of the systems and like figures out, oh, wait, uh, the ship's not disabled. This was a trap. <laughs> Oops. And so Shepard's like, oh, geez. And Edie's like, oh, yeah, by the way, I think the elusive man knew this was a trap all along. And Shepard's like, the hell? So they gather what information they can, and they escape. They fight their way out. Um, they find out, if I remember correctly here, that the collectors are being controlled by a reaper by the name of Harbinger. Harbinger is the first reaper, from what I understand. Mm-hmm. He's, he's OG reaper. Right. And um, he's basically spends the entire time you're in a collector ship taunting Shepard. You're like, this hurts you, doesn't it? <laughs> we are going to get you, Shepard. There is nothing you can do. He, he's um he's not as good as Sovereign was. No. But he, he's all right. Yeah, he's fine. So after getting their way out, uh, they they talk with the elusive man. And Shepard is pissed. Mm-hmm. The elusive man's like, yeah, no, I lied. <laughs> but hey, it was necessary in order to get in order to think the collectors have the upper hand. And also so we can get the information that we need there, which is specifically that we know how the collectors are traveling. 
they're traveling via re uh, a mass relay called the Omega-4 relay, which can only be tra traveled if you have an advanced Reaper identify friend or foe system. The elusive man says, I figured out a way to do that. We have found a derelict Reaper that is just orbiting a remote planet. Apparently it was destroyed a million years ago, and it's like, you need to go there. And Shepard's like, got fine. I don't trust you anymore, but we're going to go ahead and do this. I do have to once again shout out the casting decision to get Martin Sheen to do the elusive oh. man. Oh, yes. He does such a good job in this scene. Like, th he's one of the only actors who can make it plausible that Shepard would go fine. Instead yeah. of, get the hell out of my face, what are you talking about? It was necessary. You nearly got us all killed. <laughs> yeah, it's, oh god. Yeah, it, Martin Sheen is a fantastic actor for a reason. Yep. And he proves it in this scene. Mm -hmm. So, Shepard goes there, and they, we find out that a server's team was there, and um, they were... Basically, they ended up getting, like, sort of, like, killed on Rival or something like that. Mm -hmm. We find out that although, like, this, the Reaper is, like, no longer functional, it still is able to indoctrinate people, which seems like a problem. Yeah, a little bit. Shepard has, like, battled their way through it. Like, the derelict ship somehow activates its shields, which really makes it feel like this is not derelict. Yeah, it but... doesn't seem like it. Also, like, it's... Derelict refers to a ship and a Reaper's living thing, so... Yeah, it's a bit of an odd way to refer to it. It should it be dead, but also it's clearly <laughs> not dead. Yeah, no, not at all, not at all. So Shepard and team like managed to require like acquire the IFF signal, and like while they're being attacked, though, like somebody is sniping from afar, and eventually they end up running into this person, and it turns out it's a Geth, a Geth by the name of Legion. Hmm. You don't get a whole lot of time with Legion, so we're not going to spend a ton of time talking about him, but he's a Geth that houses uh, over a thousand individual platforms, and that allows him to operate independently and speak. He was created to dispatch and dispatch to follow in Shepard's footsteps after the latter destroyed Sovereign. Basically, the, the Geth wanted to figure out, wow, why is this, this human is pretty badass? <laughs> like, he eventually, like, stumbles upon the Normandy crash site, and, you know, like, grafts, like, the Shepard's N7 armor to it, which, like, Shepard's like, hey, why'd you do that? It's like, well, I had a hole. Like, <laughs> well, there was also a bunch of scrap around. Why didn't you use that? He's like, not really sure, actually. <laughs> so Legion itself speaks in a very exacting tone and tends to have like an interest in like philosophical questions. Like he points out how like how the Geth asked like, do they have a soul? Where why were they created? And like he mentions like he's interested in those questions as well. And uh, his loyalty mission involves actually learning about the Geth a bit in general. Like Apparently the Geth don't care about organics at all, and that the Geth that attacked with Saren were heretics mm -hmm. who wanted to bring the old machines back, aka the Reapers. Right. And basically your mission is to more or less stop them from wiping, the heretics from wiping out the regular Geth with a virus. Which you can actually use to wipe the Geth, those Geth, and turn them into good Geth, apparently. Uh, he has a very antagonistic relationship with Tally, as you could probably imagine. <laughs> they don't get along. So... You get the IFF uh, signal, and Shepard like, goes out on a mission like in between that. And during that time, the Collector's bored and seize control of the ship and manage to kidnap everybody except Joker. Joker manages to like stop them by removing Edie's behavioral locks, basically makes the AI unshackled. Mm -hmm. And she's able to enact every countermeasure and get rid of the Collectors from the ship. So Shepard comes back and goes, what the hell happened here? <laughs> 
it's really awkward too because it's literally like you just sort of leave and you're like i'm gonna walk off screen now yep. nothing bad happens yeah oh no all my friends have been kidnapped except joker I think he plays Joker during that. Yeah, you do. Too, which is fun. Yeah, you've got yeah. to get past the collectors to get to Edie's core. Oh, that's right. Yeah, it's a stealth mission. Yeah. So it, we, everyone realizes, okay, we need to go to we need to go through the Omega Four relay and make this happen. Otherwise, bad things are probably going to happen to these people because mm-hmm. nobody's ever come back when being collected by a collector. Right. So this is where they go on the suicide mission. Yeah. Let's so, talk about the suicide mission. The suicide mission may be one of the best, in my opinion, it is one of the best uh, final missions in video games. Absolutely, yes. They go through the Omega-4 relay, and like they immediately happen upon a collector ship, and during the game, you're able to upgrade the Normandy, mm-hmm. and if you upgrade Normandy enough, you just blow the hell out of the collector ship in a way that's very satisfying. And you need to do loyalty missions to unlock those upgrades, I believe. Is that right? You do, yes. Yeah. yeah. If you want to get like the upgraded cannons, you have to do... Uh, garris's mission right for right right yeah and like the normandy does get damaged it has to touch down and uh while they do touch down they decide to formulate a plan this plan involves them having to do quite a few things like they're like an assault team has to go in and lead the charge somebody has to go through like uh some tubes and like do tech stuff and then another person has to do a biotic field to keep them from being overwhelmed by the collector swarm uh the bugs that basically freeze people in place mm-hmm. And it's really great because, like, Miranda's like, well, clearly I should either be doing the biotic thing or leading the team because I am the most capable person. <laughs> if you do this, whoever's on that mission will die because <laughs> Miranda is bad. And so you can go, so you can immediately override Miranda and go like, no. And uh, a surprising amount of people apparently had a hard time actually figuring out who to select. <laughs> I did not. I did not because it's pretty clear. Yeah. The, the, uh, the fire team should be led by Garrus. Yep. The uh, person who goes into the tubes does, does the tech stuff should be Tally. Yep. And then you have a field of choices. Who's going to do the biotics? Yep. Either you have Samara or you have Jack. Pretty much. Both of those will work. Yeah. Apparently a lot of people were like, so there's a DLC character by the name of Zade, whose big story is that he's Australian, and every time he goes on a mission, his entire team dies. Right. And so people are like, well, I picked Zade because... <laughs> You know, he's a really good soldier, but then everyone died. I'm like, that's his whole deal. What the hell were you thinking? <laughs> uh, that was a common failure point, and apparently another common failure point was selecting Miranda for the for the biotics part. Mm. Mm. Which, that one makes a little bit more sense, because she yeah. plays herself up as a powerful biotic, right. even though she's not. She never, she never does anything to actually display that. Like, Jack yeah, she... and Samara actually do biotic stuff. Yeah. So, like, each character is, like, separated to, like, are you a soldier, are you a biotic, are you tech? Right. And, like, and you get bars that indicate such. And, like, Miranda is, like, a combination biotic and tech. So, she's not, she's, like, a jack-all-trade. She's not great right. either. It's, so like, even gameplay-wise, you look at that and go, mm-hmm. probably not good at that. Yeah. Samara's bars all the way over. <laughs> yeah. I'm selecting her. Yeah. So, like, if I had a criticism against the suicide mission... It's that the choices I thought were a little too obvious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, totally. I, once again, I thought so too. And then like, but the, yeah, but apparently. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. So like you fight your way through, right? And eventually you get and you find a bunch of like pods. You see all your old crewmates. You're like, oh man, this is great. We should rescue them. What about this one person? <laughs> 
you, and then you see what what they're doing. They're turning these people into goo, mm-hmm. and you watch it in horror as a person gets turned into goo. And then you have to break everyone out. And if you took too long to do the final mission, everyone gets gooified. Yep. You just lose them all. But if you do this like pretty immediately after, uh, you end up saving your entire crew. So like Dr. Chopwis gets saved, Kelly Chambers gets saved, like your weird engineer so, buddies. So there's a middle ground to this. Is there? Yes. So okay. Oh right. <laughs> I think I know what you're talking about, but keep going. So okay. I believe the threshold is if you immediately go on the suicide mission or you do mm-hmm. okay cuz I believe what happens is you can do legion's uh, yes, mission you first recruit you legion to. and then everyone gets abducted so you haven't had time to do legion's loyalty mission so mm-hmm. they give you a one mission window of okay you can go do legion right now and then you better go on the suicide quest if you do more than one mission or just go to another planet after mm. that, basically, if you make, like, two jumps, yeah, you still get to rescue most people. But Kelly Chambers is the one who gets gooified. Right, yeah. And I found that out. <laughs> oh, no, Kelly. Oops. Well, the damn. Only- the only quasi lesbian romance in this game. Yeah, but not really. But not really. Oh, uh, yeah. Poor Kelly. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was that, rough. It, it, that is rough. Yeah. Oh man, did you actually lose anybody on the suicide mission? No. Besides Kelly? No. Ah, uh, I lost Miranda. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, that's um, a shame. But yeah, so like you rescue everybody, and like Doctor Chocolates is like, "Oh man, this is crazy," and like Shepard's like, "Yeah, get back to the ship." And she's like. By ourselves? It's like, <laughs> oh, right. Uh, and you can send somebody back. And I think it literally doesn't matter who you do. As long as you send somebody back with them, they'll survive. I think they might need to be, like, a pretty decent soldier or something. Uh, I think that was yeah, the that, choice that, I made, but I don't know if that actually applied. I just know probably, it worked. I, I remember sending Garrus. Okay, yeah. And they, they, they all lived. Yeah. So you continue to fight your way through there and, you know, you know, do the biotic section and whatnot, and you get to the station core and you figure out what exactly the collectors are doing. You see, they're collecting people to gooify, and they're doing so because they're trying to construct a new Reaper. So it turns out how the Reapers reproduce is that they take sentient species, they gooify them, and then they build a robot that represents them, and they encase it then in a cuttlefish robot body, and that's the ship. Which... This is maybe the only kind of dumb thing about this. Yeah. I don't I don't know why you need to do that. <laughs> yeah, so you basically fight a giant terminator? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. A giant three-eyed terminator, which there's a lot of really good fan art and fan comics that came out after this game. And one of my favorites are like three Reapers that talk to each other. It's like how many eyes do the humans have? <laughs> one says two, the other says four. four. The other says let's compromise. And so you just see one with three. <laughs> It's so good. Um, but yeah, you fight this, and if you have the... You like, can, like, get different weapons throughout the game. Like, one of them was, like, a, basically, literally a portable nuclear warhead launcher uh-huh. that, if you're playing normal mode, actually will take down one of its phases in one hit. <laughs> that's In a way, that's very satisfying. Yep. But yeah, you fight that, and you blow the hell out of it, and, like, it falls down, it destroys the platform, you fall down, and, like, get knocked out briefly. Mm-hmm. Before that happens, you have to make a decision. Are you going to 
pull up the station or are you going to uh, give Cerberus control of this collector station? And Cerberus is like, the elusive man's like, man, I really want to, we can figure out how to use this and use it to fight the Reapers. And you can make the choice of like, I don't actually trust you at all. Mm-hmm. And I don't think you're going to use this for good. Or I can be like, yeah, okay, yeah, no, definitely. Let's, like, let's hand this over. Uh, Alex, what decision did you make? I handed it over to Cerberus. I totally did not. I, I was like, nah, son. <laughs> I don't trust you. Okay, so here's the thing. I don't dislike either option. I think yeah. this is a legitimately great endgame choice. Yeah, it's not bad. It's not a bad choice. I'm so yeah, mad. Oh, yeah, because I know, I know what happens in Mass Effect 3. I'm <laughs> so mad about this decision. I'm so mad about this decision. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I can't wait to talk about But we'll that. save that for next episode. <laughs> You're barely holding back your rage. And I love it. <laughs> so, yeah, um... Let's say for our purposes, uh, we decide to destroy it. Yeah, we might as well say that. We might as well. And so, like, explosions happen, you fall down, and then, like, you wake up, you pick up your team members. An incredibly awesome music track called The End Run starts playing. Mm-hmm. Most most video game music, say, past 2008, I I think it's good. I think it's just all generically good, but it's, like, not memorable. Yeah, it sort of loses the building blocks of the things like Mario and Zelda and even later games like Halo had. Yeah. Where it's like they, you start with a, a really well-done core track and then you build on top of that. It just mm-hmm. becomes sort of generic cinematic orchestral music. Yeah, totally. Which, we haven't talked about the soundtrack of Mass Effect boys the soundtrack to, to like the entire mass effect series just so good it's really good and this song is a standout because it's like this heart pumping thing where you are just running like hell mm-hmm. to escape all these explosions and like you know reapers are exploding and things are going crazy and like well not reapers uh collectors are exploding and like you're fighting your way out in this cutscene. And, like, you eventually, like, you're, like, doing a desperate run over, like, no man's land mm-hmm. while you're, like, being sniped at and the, <laughs> everything's blowing up behind you. Like, the Normandy, like, flies in, the doors open, like, Joker's there with a gun shooting people. <laughs> and it's so badass! Oh, so good. And, like, the, the sound, like, the, the soundtrack has a crescendo just as you jump on and fly away. And Harper's like, you have not defeated us. This is only the beginning. We are on our way. And he, like, he leaves like the collector that he's like taking, like he's like controlling, who like mm-hmm. looks back to just see explosion fly at his face. <laughs> and then you fly away, and it's great. Yeah. Ah. And like with that, like that's Mass Effect Two. Yeah. So okay, so there's a bit of a problem with this narrative with the collectors and their baby reaper man yes which is it doesn't really immediately apparently make sense like it doesn't Mm. it doesn't really make sense why it was necessary for the reapers to do this um yeah and it's not really like the method by which they're doing it is like okay so you need the dna of organic species to make a reaper okay why why is that what's that about so i i took it as like okay well they need to reproduce somehow because 
clearly every time this happens, they probably do get blown up pretty bad. Right. And this is something we're going to talk about a little bit more about Mass Effect 3. Mm -hmm. It's clear that not only just from like subtext, but from actual writers speaking out about it, there was something more that was going to happen to this about the true nature of the Reapers that just right. never got settled. And so that that's the problem, is it's like, on its own, Mass Effect 2 kind of feels, to me at least, detached from the overarching story of of the series. Yeah, totally, mm-hmm. totally. But there, it, it sets up questions that the answers could have made all that work. Hmm if they'd answered it yeah ever and so one thing i need to point out is that there is a little bit more to the ending you you show that the reapers are slowly like awaking Mm -hmm. in dark space and i start moving towards the galaxy which clearly they are doesn't make sense because that perspective means that they're probably like three thousand light years from uh anywhere from anywhere yeah from the rim of the milky way and uh, it's not clear that the Reapers have any sort of built-in FTL travel. In fact, they don't. That's why they need the Citadel to open. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Uh, so there's like, kind of like, we're on our way. That will take literally billions of years, if not more. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but they're on their way. Don't worry. <laughs> But yeah, getting back to your um, earlier points, like, mm. yeah, they set up a bunch of questions. One thing that I kind of glossed over, and that's with Tally, mm-hmm. was that when Tally does her investigation of that son that's unexpectedly dying, like, she finds out it's because it's dark matter it's doing, or, yeah, I believe it's dark matter, straight up, that's just doing that. Uh-huh. It's aging stars, which all space travel is perpetuated on using element zero, and the byproduct of element zero is dark matter. Right. And so they sh- they set up this thing. It's like, well, is there going to be bad consequences because of all the space travel that's happening? Is is it possible that maybe the Reapers are come back to purge all life so that they don't like literally dark matter everything away? No, it was, no. It was... Like, there's a lot of like really interesting questions that are going on mm-hmm. here, and none of it's going to be brought up again. Yep. Yeah, it's ah. And, like, that's the whole point of, like, a middle part of a trilogy mm-hmm. is to set up things. Yeah. Because, like, it totally nails the emotional setups. Like, I mm-hmm. really like the loop of this game being recruit people, go on mission, recruit people, go on mission. Because yeah. it, it, it makes building a team of people you know and trust and work well with, like, yeah. the core identity of the game. Oh, man, you're about to maybe segue into one of the things I like the least about Mass Effect 3. Oh, yeah? The part where you build this really cool team? Uh Uh-huh, of like 12 people who are all really awesome, mostly. And only two of them come back? (laughs) As playable characters, I should say? Don't worry about that team. We're going to make you a new team. For the third time. God, and they're not going to be nearly as cool they're just as the previous not. two games. None of them. I'm struggling Listen, to even remember who's on the team. Uh, Freddie Prince Jr. Yeah, yeah, I remember him. He might be the one new character I remember. Um, Garrus. Garrus and Tally. Yeah. 
Um, I don't actually remember. <laughs> A Krogan, I think. <laughs> or not. <laughs> Can't wait to talk about that. But um, yeah, yeah, they, they they build up this really cool cast of characters. Yeah, and then the next game, like a lot of them are only like mildly referenced. Like they all like show up in person, but usually it's just like, "Hey, Shepard, can you help me with this thing?" Right. Great, I'm gone. What was what was the point? Mass Effect Two gets invalidated by Mass Effect Three. Mm-hmm. That's ultimately the problem. Like the, I I I have my gripes with certain design choices about Mass Effect Two, but the yeah. part where I'm like it ultimately is kind of narratively irrelevant. That's because Three ignores everything of significance that happens in it. Yeah, totally, totally, and like all the characters get done dirty with. The one exception of Morden. Yeah. Morden's like the one person. Yeah. And I guess, I guess Rex too, but. And Garrus is like, Garrus doesn't Garrus. get his like grand finale, but he gets to sort of slide into his role, which is like your buddy in the yeah, end. Yeah, he, he actually has a good satisfying resolution, but unfortunately it's a satisfying resolution off screen. Yeah. Yeah. And um, we'll, we'll talk about what they do with Tally in the third game. Yeah. But yeah, um, yeah, it, it, it's really unfortunate because you really get attached to these characters and mm-hmm. and what have you. Um, and then yeah, the next game they like they they do introduce some cool characters, but the the fact that for a game that is so predicated on choice and having your choices matter, mm-hmm. it's like I built up this cool team. Oh no, you didn't want to do anything particularly crazy with them. You just want to have their own like one off sort of things, right? Oh, because you would have to compensate for the fact that any one of these characters could actually die in a suicide mission? Right. And, yeah, there's... There's the the rub. Yeah. There's the problem. So they're like, well, how about... uh, (laughs) We only have to worry about a couple of those characters. Yep. (laughs) And we'll just kind of uh, give you a bunch of new ones. Ah, like James Vega. But, yeah. uh, Nope, I don't even remember. James Vega is literally I do pull ups all day and I'm Okay, made. yes. Okay, yes. Never mind. He's the he's the one I remember. Yes. So with the end of Mass Effect 2, there were a few more DLCs. Mm-hmm. The DLCs for this game are for the most part incredibly good. Yeah. Incredibly including the Lair of Shadow Broker, which may be one of the best DLCs ever made. It was very good. Now, for purposes of time, we're not gonna take a ton of time to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Just because we're kind of already running a little long, and there's really only a couple of really big things to go over. Yeah. We can skip Zayd completely. Oh, yeah. We're not going to talk about Zayd. <laughs> uh, Zayd or Kazumi, for that matter. Oh, yeah. Kazumi's or... a thing. Yeah. Kazumi. Oh, uh, Kazumi should have been really good. Kazumi, Kazumi should have been really good, but unfortunately... She wasn't. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it... She's she's a victim of being a DLC character, which meant you they had to account for that. Yeah, so, so they can't do too much craziness. Yeah, but yeah. So the one DLC we are going to talk about, we're going to be pretty brief about that, is the Lair of the Shadow Broker because this brings Liara back, and in this game, Liara is uh, basically she has been trying to figure out who the Shadow Broker is because she ended up getting a partner who ended up getting supposedly murdered and she wants to get her revenge essentially mm-hmm. 
And so Shepard is like, okay, cool. I'll help you out. Why not? Uh, so we find out that there's been an attempt on Liara's life. Um, we like have to investigate an apartment and we like end up like finding her. And we figure out that, okay. So yeah, basically they find out where the shadow broker is. Mm-hmm. And they find out that not only did they find out where they are, but Liara's partner is alive. Whose name is not that important. Yeah. The point is, is that they fight their way into the Shadow Broker headquarters, and it's an incredibly cool mission. Like, mm-hmm. I wish I could give this justice, but like, it just has like a lot of really cool set pieces, and, like a cool interaction. Yeah, it's a lot of VR. cool action and mechanics and stuff. Yeah, but you end up fi- finding out who the Shadow Broker is, and it's a species we've never met before called the Yog. <laughs> the Yog are basically a very primitive species, who um were basically like one of them got kidnapped by a solarian and it was like we'll just basically like examine like they're in a zoo or something like that but it turns out he was really intelligent and so eventually he ended up like kind of breaking out and like taking advantage of like his solarian captors and whatnot he gathered a bunch of information and that's how he became the shadow broker um i think he may have also murdered the previous shadow broker because that's how you become the new shadow broker apparently so you yeah. shoot the you shoot the previous one, and then you get the job. It's like, it's like monarchies that way. Yeah. So Liara and Shepard fight him, and they manage to murder the hell out of the Shadow Broker. And with that, Liara is now the new Shadow Broker. Yay! Yay! And so because of that, Liara is like kind of overwhelmed. She's like, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. But she's like, well, I guess... Um, well, just, uh, I guess I'm just gonna do this now. That's kind of cool. <laughs> Anyways, Liara is like super happy about getting her revenge. Like, her partner is alive, and that's great. And she killed her one enemy who was trying to murder her for the past two years. Right. Uh, if Shepard's in a relationship with Liara um, from the previous game, he can continue this now, or she can. Uh, or he could choose to like break it off right. now. And uh, basically, Liara is like, hey, listen, I'm gonna help you in your war against the Reapers. And uh, also, here's a bunch of data files about all your squad mates. So if you want to get (laughs) background information, do you want to see uh, some security camera footage of of Jacob doing sit ups? I know you do. Well, I I did it for some reason. I I do. What's wrong with you? (laughs) Says Liara. (laughs) He has really good abs, Shepard. I've never seen so many abs. Do you think? Do you think a Prothean is responsible for that? <laughs> but yeah, so it's it's a really good DLC. We kind of ran through it really quickly, yeah. but let me assure you, it was well worth playing. It was good. I, the 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 moment where Liara becomes the Shadow Broker is pretty good. It's like she's sort of yeah. surrounded by all these monitors, and she, I think she sits in the chair. Was there a chair? I can't remember. Mm-hmm. Um, also, it's really fun because the Vogue are really big. Yeah, And so the Shadow Broker's got, like, all this technology and stuff at his disposal, but also he's really big, and he just, like, tries to punch you really hard. Yeah, he does. And so you've got to fight, like, a big alien giant man. It's a very unique fight in a game that doesn't, admittedly doesn't have a whole lot of unique fights. Yeah, like, a lot of it is just, like, robots or bug monsters shooting guns at you. Mm-hmm. Um, And then, yeah, here's this big man who's gonna come punch you real hard and like you shoot him and he's like nah and you're like oh oh well 
guess that's how that's gonna work hmm yeah it's uh it's a really really fun fight yeah really really fun so there is one other dlc that is important uh but we're gonna talk about that with mass effect 3 because that literally sense, mass yeah. effect 3 just picks up right after it i also did i also didn't play that dlc so the start of mass effect 3 was real confusing for me i bet it was <laughs> Yeah, same here. I did not play Arrival. Uh, I heard Arrival was incredibly bad. And by that point, like, it took a while for it to come out. And so by that point, I was just sort of done with Mass Effect 2. Yeah, yeah. It, so it, was, it was definitely sort of after the life cycle. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it basically involves you fighting Batarians and blowing up a mass relay. Right. So we'll talk about that more in Mass Effect 3. But yeah, that's Mass Effect 2. Yeah. Alex, do you have any final thoughts? Um... I think, again, I will just reiterate their things about Mass Effect. Oh, what, you know what? You know what my final thought will be rather than repeating myself? Uh, there is yes. a DLC that brings vehicular, ex, not exploration, brings vehicles oh, God. back. Yes. Um, so one of the things I miss from Mass Effect 1 is the Mako, Mako, whatever. The horrible, just absolutely nightmarish to control um vehicular drone that you got to drive over planets in mass effect one yeah because despite controlling like an inflatable elephant in zero gravity uh just the ability to just drive around tons of square kilometers of random planets in the galaxy sort of made them feel like real planets uh mm -hmm. now you go into orbit around those planets and you throw drones down on them which tell you if there's resources to harvest there or not yeah um, so the Mako doesn't come back. There is a DLC that adds the Hammerhead, which is a yes. hover tank, which is much more controllable. Much, much more controllable. Um, and you drive this down basically large corridors and blow things up, and that's it. Yeah, it's it's a, it's it's kind of a sad DLC. Um, it's not my favorite. Although I I have completed it multiple times. That's fair. I believe, <laughs> in fact, was it Kasumi's DLC? There was, I think, another DLC where they actually turned it into more of an open world-ish thing. I think it might have been Kazumi's DLC. I think they definitely Kazumi's. did. And it was definitely better. And my mm. feeling is, God damn it, why didn't you just replace the Mako with this and let me drive around my empty box canyon shooting giant worms with this? Yeah. Yeah, no, totally, totally. Yeah, because that would have been pretty good. That would have been great. I wish that had been there. But yeah, I think that's going to go ahead and do it for us today. Uh, my final thoughts is that Mass Effect 2 is a great game, yes. and it sets up quite a bit of things for later. I, I think it really punts on the big decisions mm -hmm. yeah. that happened in Mass Effect 1. Like, you barely interact with the council. Um, mm -hmm. Stuff with Arachne and other decisions are just kind of glossed over in the most superficial way possible. Right. But that was an okay thing, because it was the middle game. Yeah. Mass Effect 3, though, is going to have to make good on all that. And... Well, so it's well, it's kind of unfortunate because... You know, I'll save that thought for next time because I think it ties into some things pretty well. Mm, but yes, you're, you're right that it... It glosses over a lot of decisions in Mass Effect 1 and sets up things of its own for Mass Effect 3 to make good on. Yeah. And... It totally does. Yeah, Mass Effect 3 is going to be faced with the weight of basically two games mm -hmm. of decisions, and we'll see how well it does with that. I, I will spoil things. 
Not very well. Not very well. But that will be for next time. In the meantime, I'm Michael, as always, joined by Alex. And if y'all want, of course, to check out other episodes of this podcast, ftp.podbean.com. Or search for Falling Through Potholes on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play. Take care, everybody. Take care.